everybody, and welcome back once again to an exciting episode of Fantasy Tavern. Woo! And it's me again, Marita, aka Chiquitita, back to bring you another fascinating, educational, and in this case, girly, bubbly, ambitious, and confidence and uh, maybe fake it till you make it kind of level of that right now for me anyway but uh it's the barbie episode i know you're all excited it's been a crazy week it's been an all barbie non-stop on the socials just a barrage of pink and glitter and fun campy carefree sort of vibes. Oh, and look, this Kato. I guess I'll start off with showing you what he's trying to grab right now, because we, we usually start each episode off with treats. I did my best to incorporate some pink into this episode. I don't know if you know about what's been going on in the last little while. So in addition to some personal struggles... It's mostly financial. Everything else in my life, for, for the most part, is going really well. As long as it's just that one thing I have to focus on, I, I really can't complain. And then in addition to that, the owner of the Moonshine Cafe, John Marlatt, passed away on Monday of this week. And so it's been a bit of an emotional ride, for sure, and a, uh, just a lot of trying to cope with loss and have some form of a normal grieving process, but also still need to give, you know, my best to 110% to be there for my teammates there at the machine, my people that I work with and everybody that goes there and participates in events and comes out to shows and comes to the open mics and the jams and, and all the, and the, all the friends and family that have really been coming together in the last week. Everyone in the community has been rocked by this. It's it's been it's extremely depressing and in terms of it happening so suddenly accelerated into what eventually was the announcement that he had passed away. It's just it's still so hard to grasp at this time. So it, I took a little bit of time to get my thoughts together, took a little bit of more time to just decide how much of my energy and how much focus I need to put into all different other aspects of my life right now and just take a little extra time. Yeah, buddy, just take a little extra time to kind of cope with that. So now we're here. We've had a, a few days of just the Moonshine community coming together to celebrate John and talk about him and his lasting impression on Oakville and on the music community in, in Canada and just how much he's going to be missed by everybody and how we're going to do our best to, um, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a lot of just trying to get my emotions out kind of in my own way here at home and then just trying to be there and, and, and be strong for, for what I need to be there for. But yeah, just, just as a brief period here just in the beginning of the episode I just want to take a moment to have a, a moment of silence for John and just pay him a small tribute here in my way 
just to, to give him that, that moment of respect and just to, to give him his memory that he deserves. So if you'll please join me in a moment of silence now. Thank you guys for that. Life goes on and the vision and the mission of what the moonshine is about will definitely be carrying on. The family has decided to keep everything for the most part still open and as many shows as we can still going. There's going to be a little bit of time that we may not be open just so we can all have some time to ourselves and do some housekeeping in the background because that's uh, something that definitely needs to happen and also have those moments together to once again share our love for John and for the moonshine and for how he was as a a person, as a a musician, as a leader, as a business owner, and just as a supporter of local music and live music, original music, somewhere where people can come together of all ages to share their talents and that knowledge, because I think those are things that will disappear if we don't all help to keep them going so we'll still be going strong over there and and i'm really happy because of that so i have nothing but admiration and just my i owe so much to them and to everybody there john jane and the whole family and then so many other regulars and people who just are staples of the moonshine culture and who I know we'll be doing their part to keep everything going basically just as it was. So very, very pleased about that. And so without further ado, let's continue into the episode. Thank you all guys for joining me. And once again, dealing with all of the delays and everything, but I think in this case, it's a little bit of a well-founded delay. So thank you for bearing with me. We're not doing any alcohol today. I've had my share of drinks this week, as I've mentioned, in light of events. They're, 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 I was drinking. I've been drinking. It was supposed to be a dry July, which I think that ended like a week before all of this happened. Yeah, this July has been uh, wet as fuck. It's been real moist. I'm doing just some coffee today, water, just lots of fluids to help me get back to a little bit more feeling like a human being get hydrated again and get some of my energy back just as a starbucks triple shot can i get a lot of my drinks from dollarama my like sort of um, treat drinks that i like to get on my way back from doing uh, things out and about adulting and such so this is just a triple shot french vanilla i topped it off with a little bit of almond coconut milk and i threw i put some raspberries in there in the top yeah this is exactly what i needed threw some ice cubes in there there's like that subtle raspberry flavor in there now. Yeah, my love of taking naps is well known, and I'm not trying to do that today. I need to stay awake. Okay, and then we've also got here, I ordered a bunch of sushi and treats. I got here, I got a bento box and a little extra 
sushi. I went with this because it seemed like a, a slightly healthier option. And sushi is great for the pink aesthetic. They have really nice photos. Uh, <laughs> they have really nice dinner bentos. And so I got a whole bunch of stuff, but I'm going to start out with this just while we're munching. And then I'll, I'll bring out the other food maybe on the second half of the episode. I got some miso soup. More fluids. This is key. I have also here a very beautiful Barbie-inspired sushi takeout. We've got some salmon, yellow tail, some tuna, and a shrimp. And then we have a... This is really pink. You can sort of see a bit of, like, orange coming through it, but it's not really pink. But this is just what came with the bento box. So this is just an assorted tempura. And not for cats, Phobos. If you're nice, I will give you some, but not if you try to swipe. Swipe or no swiping. Look at this sweet boy. He's been cuddling with me all day long. But he's also here right now because I have fish, so. We'll give you some in a sec, my boy. Please behave. And yes, the outfit. So the outfit, I got. I went out and bought a few Barbie-inspired pieces. I'm going to do a little Barbie photo shoot soon with some of the stuff I bought. But yeah, right now, my body is definitely keeping the score. Feels like I've been hit by a truck. I do not have nearly enough weed to get through the rest of this week. I need to wait till I get paid to get more weed. So I have this pen. So uh, there's that. I'm going to just take a lot of baths and use my ibuprofen. Should be good. This is fine. Should be fine. Almost no, my boy. No. Yeah, the, the head wrap. My hair is is fucking jacked right now. Like it's it's just completely gross. I haven't dyed it in a while, so it's there's a lot of grow out. There's a lot of gray. I don't really know what I want to do with it right now. I'm kind of trying to wait till my birthday to really get some some real shit done to it. And I'm basically just trying to grow it out and keep it the same for as long as possible without it looking absolutely awful. So for this episode, I am wearing my Barbie appropriate pink. And I recently got this super cute, it's like a, just a nice light kind of lounging around dress. It's halter, and it does actually have crisscrosses in the back that you can put, but because I'm lazy, I just decided to halter it at the back. I didn't do all the crisscross stuff, ain't nobody got time for that. At least not today. For the photo shoot. And then I have some Barbie pink chromatica nail polish that I got on things have just been kind of in my brain not really like it just less with it is than usual in terms of me being able to process things so and I'm just trying to give myself some grace with that because like there's valid reasons as to why that's going on so we're we're just gonna try and roll with that okay so I'll take one bite of my food as we're getting started on the episode here for those of you who haven't seen the Barbie movie, I did go to see it. I was high as balls, and I went in this dress in, like, full makeup and cute little accessories and everything, and I, I even stayed awake for most of it. So, big wins there. I took a lot of notes. I did a lot of follow-up reading of some reviews and critiques and have my own opinions on kind of how I thought about the movie, which I feel like in a lot of cases... Uh, again, we're going to talk about that as the the episode progresses, but yeah, I, I'll, I'll have my own thoughts and feelings about everything to do with that. 
I actually had a really good conversation recently with my mom, who is up at the cottage without me, but that's fine, whatever. Um, So she is chilling up there. And I remember very vividly her stories about playing with Barbies as a kid. I remember finding a lot of Barbies at my grandma's house as a child. I was definitely a Barbie girl. I was pretty spoiled as a kid. My brother and I were actually pretty spoiled by our grandparents and our parents as children. They were very lucky and had a pretty good childhood in that respect in terms of the amount of like toys and shit that we got. So I had a lot of Barbies stuff and I had basically a lot of the iconic 90s Barbies that people know of now, as well as all the accessories and, and vehicles and everything that you got too. So it's something that I remember a lot from my childhood. I did definitely turn into the kid that was the weird Barbie kid that played with the Barbies a little too hard and ended up drawing on them, cutting all their hair off, coloring on it, drawing on them, cutting up all their clothes, making new different clothing things out of all cut up and ripped up clothing and incorporating different toys from different toy franchises into the play. So it's like all these different Basically, like before Toy Story, this was all what all kids were doing, right? They were just taking all their different toys and like blending them into the Barbie land fantasy. There's definitely a triangle with G.I. Joe going on. G.I. Joe, although in the military, which, you know, controversial to some as a decision. But this resulted in a very scandalous love triangle that went on for quite a few years. Just an example of some of the funny shit kids do with, with their Barbies. I saw this really good quote too recently where it's kind of like Barbie was made to be destroyed, was was created for destruction in a way. And that's why it's kind of like it's straddling the line, especially in later years when they tried to make Barbie more of a collector's item versus a kid's toy. Is it like how, how pristine are you supposed to keep a toy that's for children, right? Like, is there such a thing as playing too hard? And and I think that's sort of something I'll get into as well with my critique of the movie. It's all about kind of intention and, and, and nuance. Two things that can make or break good film and make or break good ideas of anything, really. So we're going to get into that now. It's about 20 minutes in and I've already not really talked much about anything to do with Barbie specifically, but we're going to start all the way at the beginning. And I just was trying to give you some context of kind of how I did my research on this. Once again, The Return of the Cat Notebook, where I keep all of my chaotic, unhinged looking notes for every single podcast episode is back. So we're going to try to work that in and actually go in order of what I'm supposed to be talking about. Let's just go back here and get started. I want to make sure I have everything before we go here. Phobos, are you ready, buddy? Hey, where are you going? Hey, sweet boy. Are you ready to start the episode with mommy? You going to be a good boy? Okay. All right, Phobos is ready. So essentially, we've got our brief history of Barbie. Now, many of you have done your own research as well on this. It's kind of unavoidable right now since it's all over the internet. What are you doing? Thank you. Boy, no. I'm assuming for those of you who have been looking this up online, there's a lot of great resources that were already out there on the internet. A lot of it coming from personal collectors. 
you'll find some really good quality collectors of actual original Barbies and all the accessories, as well as uh, some really good reproductions. They go into a lot of detail about not just the time period and, and how that influenced each doll, but the, the features on each of the dolls, as well as the sort of unique characteristics of that particular type of doll that they came out with. And so like things that you should be looking for if you're collecting that should be included with that doll. People who are collectors are very serious about their shit. There's actually The Toys That Made Us on Netflix is a good little sort of toy documentary miniseries to watch. It's got an episode about Barbie and Mattel that you should definitely check out. There's a lot of other really good resources because of the movie where they've given some insight into, if you watch the movie, where all their inspiration came from, from the set design, the costumes, even the the dialogue in the movie referencing certain things, little cameos by all the different Barbies and Kens and whatever that have existed through the decades. Mm. Holy shit. Well, boss, that's not for you. Um, we're going to do this all episode. I'm going to have to block you up, bro. Get out of here. Did he not? Bro. So, anyway. Sir. One. So, we're starting from the very beginning. Barbara Millicent Roberts. The full government name. <laughs> not the full govy. <laughs> because as some of you may be aware, Barbie has a full name. She's got a whole backstory. She's got lore. She's got canon. She's got all the things that any good character archetype has, right? So we've got... <sighs> Their fully fleshed out name, hometown, birthday, siblings, family, and a list of all of the friends, relatives, occupations, outfit pieces, and every single spinoff line that they've done for Barbie. I've done my best to write it down. I made a very crude looking family tree to also keep me on track that's going to show all of the different relationships of everything that's been going on. And I stuck to the really main core characters. This would look like insane if I'd have to put it on like a fucking Bristol board, put it on like a map in order to show all of those connections. And some of them, it's kind of pointless because a lot of those Barbies were very short lived. They either appeared briefly in like a couple episodes or movies of something to tie in with a Barbie episode or movie or they were like toy ideas that didn't really work out, so they got discontinued. Oh my goodness, boy. So only the only the very key main characters and their sort of universe, the part of the Barbie Marvel Cinematic Universe, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I actually just found out today they're planning on putting out like twenty. Mattel related movies now because of Barbie as well as discussing Barbie sequels. So again, one of my, one of part of my critique of the movie, which I'll, I'll talk about later. So back to Barbara. So Barbara, Barbie for short, Barbie was named after the daughter of the creator of Barbie. 
And when I say creator, I'll explain that as well. It's a, it may or may not be the accurate term, but the creator of Mattel and of this version of, of Barbie as a doll. So going back to the very beginning, I will, I'll add some years in to give you guys some context of when all these things happened. Cause I didn't really put those in my notes, but just to give you a brief synopsis. So the creator of Barbie was a couple, Ruth and Elliot Handler. They are both American and Ruth Handler is the person who is quoted the most for the creation of Barbie. So it was a joint effort with her and her husband, Elliot, as well as somebody called Harold Matson, who was a friend of theirs. And the three of them designed the image, the actual functioning working parts of the doll and the, all the marketing, as well as, you know, keeping everybody on track in terms of time frames and budgets Basically, Ruth Handler was the business person of the of the relationship, and she had had successful business with Elliot in the past, doing furniture and doing other sorts of things with this Mattel precursor company that they had, and they started then moving into toy production a later on in the course of this business. So Ruth Handler, she was kind of already having these thoughts in her brain, sort of light bulbs about where business was going. She was already very savvy in that respect as a person already. And Elliot was more of the designer and concept person for the company. So stereotypically, especially back then when they first started their business, this was very reversed in the way that men and women had roles in business. It was very much assumed that women would be the design and concept people and men would be the ones to actually carry out all the technical business sides of things and the production. But for Ruth, it was often the opposite. She was mostly on the business side of things. She was the one who was in charge of how the whole day-to-day operations went and Elliot was helping to kind of come up with the names for the Barbies and all the different kind of clothing and the overall image. Not that they didn't work on, on these things together, but it was more that the business corporate side of it was Ruth's sort of jam. And Ruth in general, the way that Barbie sort of came about was as a mother of a girl and a boy, she can see the differences in the availability of toys for boys and girls. So even up till now, and we'll talk about this more in the incorporation of pink as a color into the Barbie universe, into all the Barbie marketing and all the different toys in the beginning, even before the color coding, gender coding of toys that way, boys tended to have more three dimensionally interactive toys and toys that would inspire them went to certain things as they grew up and became adults in terms of like life skills and career choices so with, with boys playing, they could kind of imagine themselves as different occupations like doctor, firefighter, astronaut, scientist, all these different things. And girls didn't have that. They were very much discouraged from it in society as it was. And 
on top of that, at, even as children, it started as young as the toy options that you're given. So girls didn't get to have the experience of even pretending to be all of these different occupations and professions, or even having toys that would kind of introduce them to the skills that would help them in the future with those things. Their options for toys were paper dolls and soft toys, plushies, and baby dolls. So toys that were really only encouraging a motherly sort of domestic vibe. So again, playing with dolls in the beginning that are babies is encouraging women to just constantly be associated with babies, having children, being mothers, housewives, where boys had all these other different options. And the paper dolls, the quality of them, obviously, it's not going to last. Paper gets ripped very easily. And it really reinforces that sort of subconscious thing of the one-dimensional woman. The only option you have for fashion play, it's just paper. You don't actually get to touch the fabric. The hair of, of the paper dolls, you don't actually get to feel real hair. And you don't get to really have that full immersive experience with what you're playing with. Beyond just like switching out clothes that are attached with little tabs and the longevity of the toy as well, unless you were creative and wanted to make your own templates and clothes yourself, the really, the, your options were very limited and not everyone wants to feed a baby and pretend they're taking care of a baby and play house like that all the time. So one day they were vacationing in Europe. I believe it was Switzerland Barbara and Ken are the names of Ruth Handler's children. And this is where the names Barbie and Ken came from later as dolls. And there is a conflicting stories about kind of the inspiration for where the Barbie doll came from. And so uh, during their trip, this is in 1956 with their children. There was a very popular toy that was being sold around Europe. And some people consider it to be a children's toy. It was sold in that respect in certain places. However, for most people, it was considered to be a bit more of an adult-themed toy. And the reason for this is because the inspiration came from a comic strip called Lily. It was a German comic. And the title character, Lily, of this comic is kind of best described as a, a high-class escort type of woman. After doing some research, I kind of came to the conclusion that I think that's maybe what people considered her to be the equivalent of. But nowadays, she, she sort of would be more like a Carrie, like more of a Sex in the City character, I would say, than a, than a call girl. She, she, she kind of was just like a very modern, very fashionable woman. She was not afraid of looking sexy in public. She was kind of an unapologetic chaser of rich men kind of think about like, those Marilyn Monroe kind of vibe movies where she's constantly, you know, she, she's serving looks. She's acting in a very thoughtful bimbo sort of way. Like she, she knows exactly the kind of seduction tactics and the sort of visual look that she needs to have in order to get a man. And in terms of being appealing, sexually attractive, she doesn't shy away from that. So the comic in this um, German, basically it was a tabloid. And I can't remember if I referenced it in the tabloid episode that I did, but it's called Bild Zeitung. It's, it was considered to be not a super high class 
tabloid. It was one of the first kind of like trashy tabloid magazines. So the built, it's basically is where that name got attached to Lily. And so built Lily was the name of the doll that was produced in correlation with this comic. So the build Zeitung, because the comic strip was so popular, it commissioned a German manufacturer to make this toy for them. And so the toy was made and, and essentially this was one of the early critiques of the Barbie doll because the, the overall look of her body for a lot of people was too sexually suggestive for children. And that's why they didn't want to have their kids playing with a Barbie doll because they were worried that it was going to incite these like crazy sexual perverse thoughts in everybody. So, and the idea that the toy was initially sold as a sexual novelty in a way, a lot of people are saying that historically it was kind of given, for example, guys at a bachelor party would give it to somebody as a joke gift. It's something that was not really typically sold to be used by children. Ruth Handler saw the potential in this doll because she saw that it was a a fully functioning doll with movable parts. It had real hair. It had clothes that you could take on and off. And so she kind of saw the potential for both selling it as a doll with clothes, but then not enough clothes. It was like a full look. And then you would have to buy the extra clothing and accessory packs to add on to the doll. So there was options there. And she saw the potential for kids to have an actual tactile experience of playing with a real toy that wasn't a baby and give kids just at least some other kind of option for fashion play. The thing is that initially getting this doll off the ground, as I said, was met with some resistance because people kind of started to find out about the origins of the doll and that it was attached to this comic and this initial doll that was sold in Europe and didn't want to have anything to do with it. And that only solidified in people's minds the fact that it was a sexual toy and therefore inappropriate for children. So the thing that kind of turned it around, so what happened with Mattel is that they brought in a psychiatrist and they did focus groups with people and really tried to get a sense of how they could present this toy so that people would actually be on board with it and buy it. And what they noticed is that back in the 50s, especially, the, well, of course, parents are concerned that their, their kids, their daughters, more so than their sons, but they were very concerned that this toy would make their kids be promiscuous and have low morals. But what they also noticed is that because Barbie was being promoted as a very high-class, high-society, outgoing, and well-groomed young woman... The only thing that parents were afraid of more than their kids being sexually promiscuous is them not being able to get a man at all. So they realized that they would rather have their kids use this toy as an instruction on how to have good poise and hygiene and have nice outfits and good makeup and be social rather than focus on the sex aspect of it. And that's how they managed to sell the doll because they realized that it would help their kids be a certain quality and level of woman as they grew up by being influenced by this toy. And therefore that would make them more successful for future relationships, marriage and whatnot. People's minds are very interesting. Phobos, can you now please? Thank you. Not for you. So 
more or less, they went ahead with production of the doll. And what's really genius is that when a lot of people don't realize is Build Lily was already a fairly well-advanced toy from the start of her creation. Had a lot of innovations for a toy that they took and found in Harold Matson the ability to design and patent a lot of really cool features on the Barbie doll that they added and took away over the years. I'll discuss that as the episode goes on the level of quality and the level of, of accessories and features that they would put on the Barbie and their clothing, different parts and, and all the other stuff. Once they, they also had help from an inventor and designer named Jack Ryan. And that's where they, between all of them, they collaborated. They came up with the name Barbie. Bar, uh, Ruth decided to name it after her daughter. And at the American International Toy Fair on March 9th, 1959, Barbie was unveiled to the public. And in Barbie lore, that is the date that they use for Barbie's birthday, March 9th, 1959. And this is where the Barbie was released with the signature black and white striped swimsuit, her signature ponytail with the bangs and sort of like the, the knot look in the top of the ponytail, her glasses, her little shoes. She's got her signature up until the 70s, her side glance that they give her and uh, very 50s-esque blue eyeshadow, heavy mascara and lashes and a signature lip. And this is basically what we kind of know and love as when we think about the vintage original Barbie. That's one of the looks that we are immediately going to associate it with. There is a big push to have the dolls manufactured as soon as possible. And because there was such an interest in them right away, they also wanted to try and keep the, the level of quality that they were looking for. The first Barbie dolls were manufactured in Japan and the clothing was all hand stitched. About 350,000 Barbie dolls were sold in the first year of production. And Barbie's first career was a teenage fashion model. So right from the beginning, Barbie had a career and she, again, like maybe a bit problematic that they're sort of marketing it as a teenager, but giving her a more decidedly grown up look. But Barbie was doing her own thing, having her own career, traveling the world, lounging by the pool. She was doing it all. This was very appealing to girls and sort of gave the idea that in, in play, girls kind of got the idea that they could have a fulfilling and rich life, even, even if they did end up getting married and doing other stuff, that they had the option to have all these good life experiences before they got older and settled into something else. So that was another big reason why Barbie as a positive feminine and positive role model for children, there, there's one good thing about that. And then as the years went on, they incorporated different things that Barbie could do in terms of her social life and her occupations. So this, of course, because people started to see the resemblance to build Lily. They had the company that Lewis Marks and company, which sued Mattel in 1961 
and they claimed that Mattel had infringed on Griner and Hauser's patent for Build Lily's hip joint, uh, as well as the overall concept for the look of the doll, which if you look at pictures of what Build Lily used to look like versus what Mattel turned Barbie into, there's really very little change in how the doll looks overall. And so there was a whole back and forth legally, and Mattel actually ended up purchasing that company that made Build Lily. Build Lily ended up disappearing, and Barbie emerged as the one true doll. There can only be one. And you'll start to hear as we go into this episode just how shady and cutthroat Mattel and um, Ruth Handler could be in terms of getting what they wanted and making sure that Mattel stayed at the top spot in terms of the number one toy manufacturers in the world. Not that they're alone in that respect. Other companies obviously have been doing their dirty deeds, dunder cheap. A lot of companies are going to do whatever it takes to dominate the industry. So we'll go into sort of the mixed ethics of how Mattel has run their business throughout this. But essentially, Mattel at that point had had the upper hand in that respect. They basically bought out the copyright and the patent rights at the time. It, twenty-one around twenty-one thousand dollars, which at the time was probably quite a bit of money. But we think about it, that's how much it took. That's all it took to buy out the company is kind of crazy. And Ruth kind of was called out for a lot of these things in terms of who actually owned the rights to a lot of Barbie's patent features and design features, overall concept features. This was between her and her Elliot and Harold Matson. There was a, again, we'll go into detail about their back and forths in court. And as well, her and Elliot ended up losing their jobs at Mattel after a financial investigation, which found them guilty of issuing misleading false financial reports in order to still keep their investors and their numbers up. But I'll go into that as well later. Mattel moving into the 80s, where toys were so attached to what was on television, so in, in TV and movies, you didn't really make a cartoon or a kid's TV show without having some sort of product to sell in conjunction with that. There was no point otherwise. So Mattel very much broke into doing that in as time went on. That's sort of the initial history of Barbie. So Barbie kind of came out of a questionably loose woman, you might say, modern woman, big city woman. There's actually a, a movie about Bill Lilly. I believe it's called Animation auf der Großstadt. I'm probably butchering that German. I don't know if that's actually correct. I'll look it up. But if you want to learn more about Bill Lilly and the history of that and sort of uh, yeah, I mentioned Ostergorstadt. Okay, so I, I was think I was mostly right in that. A movie that they actually did that features like the character of Lily, you know, doing her bad bitch shit. They actually did a audition to find the best Lily for that movie. The comedy mystery sort of thing. That was like Lily's first and I think only major motion picture. So moving on from that. So Lily ended up getting disappeared, and Barbie emerged. Her past was scrubbed clean. She was no longer a hoe in these streets. 
She was a slightly more respectable teenager, jet-setting fashion model, and uh, overall inspiration to young girls everywhere. Starting in the 50s and 60s, we're going to go through... I'm going to just start going through all of the like iconic Barbies that were made over, over the years. I think that's probably the easiest way to do this. So this is, again, starting in the mid-1950s. The, that was the initial Barbie suit. Starting here, the, in 1962, before women were able to open their own bank accounts, have their own credit without a man's co-signing or doing it for them, Barbie bought her first dream house in 1962. So right, right off the bat, remember that even though Ken got introduced, Barbie and Ken never, he was always just Barbie's boyfriend. Barbie never got married. She never had children. And she owned her own house, her own car, all her own clothing, presumably from all of these occupations that she had. That is such an ironic thing because she was doing that at a time where real women were not allowed to do any of those things. And so there was never a, maybe with some people, there was an implication that maybe a man had gotten it for her, but that was never actually explicitly said. Fully furnished, it's a symbol of independence, empowerment. It was, like, of course, very chic and... Barbie appropriately designed for the time. And then as early as 1967, they started coming out with celebrity crossover dolls. One of the first Barbie celebrity dolls was a Twiggy based doll in 1967. First Barbie camper came out in 1971. It featured a picnic set out, pop-up tent, sleeping bags. And then we started having in the 70s more of Barbie's professions being opened up. They were still very gender stereotypical professions, unfortunately to say, but they were still professions that were branching out past the original types of things. And it was more than, you know, just like Barbie goes to the beach, which was kind of what Barbie turned into in the 70s a lot of like in the Malibu Barbie times, very much focused on Barbie, like just hanging out at the beach, getting sun damage and not really doing anything very substantial in terms of her life. In the eighties, it turned into a lot of Barbie workout. So going back to not really giving girls a lot of potential in terms of the extent of the imaginative options that they have in the real world, it was very much limiting girls to all you really are expected to do is just hang out on the beach and look nice or, or work out a whole bunch and look nice. In fact, one of the first Barbies that they had, which I believe was the slumber party Barbie, it featured a scale as part of the accessories because at the sleepover, what are all the girlies going to do? They're going to weigh each other and then comment on how horribly overweight all of them are even when they're not. That's not, I don't know if that's a thing that actually happens. I, so I absolutely hope it's not a thing that really happens. But this was what they were encouraging girls to do back then. Is fucking meet up at the sleepover and then weigh themselves. And then the uh, other accessory that this doll had was a book 
that said how to lose weight. It was like a little plastic book and it was like, honestly, just two sides. So it didn't really open up or anything, but it was like how to lose weight on the one side. And then you flip it over and it says, don't eat on the other side. This is what they were selling to young girls, a doll that already has drawn criticism for for promoting an unrealistic beauty standard because of how skinny it is and how unrealistic the proportions are. But we're now explicitly giving girls a toy that is promoting eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Now, I did watch a couple things about Barbie, and obviously, like, back then, they're promoting an extremely unrealistic beauty standard in the 50s and 60s. That is very true. So they, they made Barbie look like obviously they're, and they're also trying to make her look like what, what they would consider as to be a, a peak model body. But yes, it is extremely unattainable and unrealistic. There's a, a lot of issues with people calling Barbie out for objectifying teenagers and promoting an unhealthy body image as, and so many other things. Of course, that has changed quite a bit, as we've seen in recent years. They have added other Barbies with different body types. They have added Barbies with different disabilities. So that is important to note. But yes, in the beginning especially, part of the reason they were able to market this doll is because it had to hold on to some of the unhealthy social expectations of the time. They are not a perfect example of being able to be a toy that's completely free of male influence and unhealthy social rules and regulations for women, 100%. But at the time, it was one of the better options that people had. So, And as the years have gone on, a lot of this had to do with the people that were in charge of Mattel over the years, too. They have really done their part to try and bring Barbie into the new generation and not hold on to those very much archaic ideas of what girls were supposed to be given as toys and what children should be exposed to in terms of certain things that may not seem very serious to us, but definitely, even subconsciously, that's going to lead to a lot of unhealthy uh, and toxic behaviors and thoughts as you get older, right? Please, I leave you for one second. You steal my food. No, thank you. Okay, Phobos, please leave. Thank you. All right, now where was I? So, starting in the 50s and 60s, let's go back to that Barbie aesthetic. So, we're seeing a lot of influence from like designer, high fashion. In the beginning, we're looking at all of the different things that came with the toys in terms of the dresses. They were very much the big A-line skirts with the fitted tops. Barbie, of course, has her iconic pointed feet at all times. And the feet were always in a heel and always had her handbag, always had earrings, had to have like jewelry accessories. The initial Barbie doll, this was not super focused on a pink palette. In fact, the first Barbies actually had a lot of red. And then over time, they started to add a little bit more color in. The outfits became a little bit more more varied. They started adding a bit more sporty vibe for Barbie. They added sort of like a collegiate thing for Barbie later on as well. And then over time, 
they would introduce Ken and Barb, some of Barbie's friends. Now, of course, based on the feedback from consumers and, and of society of how it was at the time, people still were made their comments and concerns about Barbie not having a male love interest. Maybe Barbie should at least have some kind of boyfriend. And talking about how maybe there should be a, a Barbie option that's, that doesn't seem as sexual for, for, for people to offer their children a Barbie that's a little bit more approachable. And so then they responded to that by introducing Skipper, Barbie's sister, Ken, Barbie's boyfriend, Midge and Alan, who were marketed as Barbie and Ken's besties, best buddy. Again, very interesting thing about society and feedback like that. It's so interesting where it's like they didn't want Barbie to be with, to be chasing guys, but they still want her to appear desirable and cishet and fall into those norms of having to, you know, eventually date, settle down. But yeah, the way that they kind of like got around that and never, she never really officially ever had to do that is so interesting to me. Just the implication that it might happen, though was enough for people to still stay on board with the toy. So I'm going to go through, so just a few stats for you, just in terms of like sales and, and in terms of Mattel as a company. The company, obviously, Barbie is Mattel's most profitable toy line that they've ever done. If you look up Mattel, they've got a lot of other popular toy lines that they did. And there were also a lot of spinoffs from Barbie that... I'll go into that they tried to kind of market off of later on. For example, Mattel owns other brands such as Hot Wheels, Fisher Price, American Girl, Thomas and Friends, which is Thomas the Tank Engine, Uno, Mega, so many different toys that they have. I believe they own like Rock'em Sock'em Robots, Monster High, I think they have something to do with a couple other cartoons and stuff, which may or may not have some sort of significant toy sales. But as we know, Barbie and Mattel have obviously collaborated with the movie coming out. And Mattel has profited off this so much since this shit has dropped. And as I mentioned before, they're now looking to expand into doing this with a bunch of their other toy lines. Mattel has been very successful since its inception, and that is in very large part to both Ruth Handler and then just subsequently the people that they've had come into their roles of CEO over the years and all the different companies they've acquired in order to be at the level that they are now. And as we know now, Barbie now has all these different movies that they've put out, these like computer-generated animation movies, they have Barbie vlogs. They've got all these different things that they do with Barbie-related content that goes past the toys now. Barbie and Ken have been described as the two most popular dolls in the world. Barbie has had a significant impact on social values by conveying characteristics of female independence and with her multitude of accessories, an idealized upscale lifestyle that can be shared with affluent friends. Because... That's the other thing you have to remember about Barbie and toys in general. 
a lot of kids don't grow up with Barbie because they just can't afford it. Their parents can't afford it. Barbie, owning Barbies represented and, and, and just realizing this in my, for myself growing up and in talking to my mom about a lot of the stuff that she had as a kid, Barbie represented such a, it was such a social signifier of like the type of friends you had, the type of money your friends and their parents had. There's a privilege. And then my mom had the added thing of having access to Europe through my, my grandfather. So they, she would be able to go to Germany and other countries and find Barbies that they did not have in North America and bring them back. And then everyone would lose their shit and be like, where, the, where did you get that? Europe had a lot of different lines of Barbies that we never got here. Europe had different races of Barbies long before they had them in North America as well. And especially being in Canada, that also limits your access to a lot of the different Barbies because America, just even the difference between Canada and the States of the type of Barbies we weren't able to get, that was also an advantage that she had because we had family in the States too. But just ultimately, yeah, the signifier of the affluence, of the ability to tell who was rich, who, who wasn't, who had money and who didn't by the amount and type of Barbies that you had. It was a very real thing. Because, like, but back then, to a lot of people, that was still quite a lot of money. Then on top of that, your kid wanted the dream house, the camper, the car. And I feel like, in a way, that's how they got you, kept you hooked, right? And then, so they had to then continuously come up with new ideas and then also continuously be tying them to the television market, once, once Mattel got involved with Disney, that was game over. Because when they started coming out with all of the Disney dolls for all of the different movies, that alone is going to keep them in business forever. So that comes with a lot of their reputation, but also their ability to muscle in there and get that business and have that connection. Okay, so we'll take a little break from the snacks. I'll talk for another like half an hour and then we'll take a little break. I'll come back with more snacks. This is where we get into the first Barbies in the 1950s and 60s. So representing that affluent high class sort of nature of how the initial dolls were trying to be marketed. So you're going to see them with a lot of those silhouettes that are influenced by high fashion design. You're going to see a lot of like very, quaffed hairdos, hairstyles, those little things like the accessories like coats and and stuff like that were also a big thing that people loved in terms of accessories. All different kinds of looks, including like very evening glamour looks were very popular. Uh, Jackie Onassis and that sort of very put together, almost presidential first lady sort of vibe was very much what the first Barbies kind of were influenced by. The reason that this Barbie movie, can you not do that? That is not good for you. Oh my goodness, Phobos. I'm just going to feed him because he's being ridiculous. Phobos, can you come here? Can you please come here? Phobos, come here. Come here and eat this, please. Is that you? Okay, let's try that again. Oh my goodness. So yeah, because the Barbie movie for Mattel came along at a very good time. 
they had a brief upturn in sales during the Toy Story times. The story, the, how it goes with Toy Story, which I also just learned recently, is that Mattel was approached to have their toys in the first Toy Story. But they didn't want to because they didn't think the movie was going to do well. And they didn't want their, their brand associated with a movie that may or may not do well. But the movie didn't flop. It became a huge hit. And so every single sequel since then, Mattel has been involved in it. That's where we have the appearance of tour guide Barbie, which I don't think was actually a Barbie, but uh, they made it into a Barbie for the movie. Great Shape Barbie was reintroduced in Toy Story, in one of the Toy Story movies. There was also Animal Love and Ken, who was an inspiration for one of the Kens. See, Polos, isn't that so much nicer? Isn't that nice? Instead of drinking, instead of trying to drink my coffee. <laughs> He's such a weirdo. Okay, we're going to try and keep it together right now. Just keeping it together. And so with the introduction of the Barbie movie, because between 2014 and 2016, the doll sales took a nosedive. And between the time, basically, the Barbie movie was announced until now, they've had significant growth and have the availability to exponentially keep expanding that growth through more franchise tie-ins. And also, this has now expanded to a whole pink aesthetic that everyone's been jumping on since the Barbie movie's been announced. So Barbie Core, as it's now called, which sort of promotes an all-pink, very girly, I guess almost bimbo-esque, you could say, vibe. Again, characterized by like very curated and put-together looks, all with pink. And in kind of embracing that fusion of childhood and adulthood in your in your aesthetic basically so barbie core that has led to as well a renewed interest in barbie related merch and collector's items so that's another big market that has now opened up not just for children's toy sales but uh, many adults are jumping in on that and um, making those purchases themselves for their own personal collections so I, I looked up again, sort of a, a brief chronological history of all of the different Barbies. So the standard range of Barbie dolls are approximately 11 and a half inches tall. Basically, since 1974, she's been influencing pop culture, not just in the types of toys that they released and the impact on the individual consumers, but in terms of like the cultural zeitgeist. There's a lot of examples of them referencing Barbie as early as the 70s. For example, a section of Times Square was renamed Barbie Boulevard for a week. There was a Barbie exhibit at the Louvre. Andy Warhol was very inspired by Barbie. There was a painting of Barbie that sold uh, at Christie's for $1.1 million. There was the creation of an Andy Warhol Barbie as well. The first Barbie-themed restaurant opened in Taiwan in 2013. The Mattel theme park is expected to open very soon if it hasn't opened already. Oh, no, it's supposed to open in 2024. So that's that's just a Mattel theme park. It's not just Barbie, but it's, it's Mattel in general. So, like, that park's going to have not just Barbie stuff, but it's going to feature the Barbie Beach House... Barbie celebrated her 50th birthday in 2009. 
chronicled in New York Fashion Week. And there was fashions contributed by all sorts of different designers, designers that have designed for Barbie in the past, Bob Mackie being one of the most iconic ones, Diane von Furstenberg, Vera Wang, Calvin Klein, and Christian Louboutin. Barbie has a Dream Gap project, which is talking about the acknowledgement by Mattel that there is still a large gap in girls and boys growing up and having less confidence in their own intelligence and pursuit of different careers, whereas boys don't. Girls have a lot more of those feelings of doubt and lack of confidence come up uh, at a younger age. And a lot of that, while Mattel doesn't necessarily address that directly, a lot of that comes from being discouraged by patriarchy. That's still a very huge thing. So Mattel, recognizing this, has tried to create this foundation in order to address this issue. And they, they feel that through their toy options that girls can have that gap closed for them. This inspi- A statistic is, for example, this is affecting the amount of representation by women in the job market. So, for example, 33% of sitting judges in the U.S. are female, which a lot of people believe is due to women not being encouraged to pursue law and pursue higher representation in, in the court system as a judge. And a lot of that has to do with being discouraged by a male dominated industry. And when women are not represented, their rights and their needs in the legal system also don't get represented. So Because of that, Mattel, for example, released the Judge Barbie, which we do also see in the movie. There is a Supreme Court Judge Barbie, and this Barbie was released with four different skin tones and hairstyles, was given um, all the accessories. Mattel announced a line of essential worker dolls after the pandemic. There was a Habitat for Humanity dolls. In addition to eventually incorporating, like I said before, different races, different ability Barbies, different career Barbies and things like that to sort of keep up with the times, as you would say. Okay, so I'm going to try and go through the list. So yes, that's what I'm looking for. Full source of complete list of all Barbies. If you go online, there is not only the normal Wikipedia, but there is a Barbie wiki. Um, Once again, shout out to fandom and different sites for compiling all of these. Some of them you will have to kind of go into the search, switch it around, because a lot of the sites just have every single Barbie listed kind of in alphabetical order. So if you want to go complete list of all Barbie dolls chronologically is what you really want to search. So let's see if they have it here. I think it's this one. Here we go. So going back to this to the Barbies from the 1960s. As you move through the 50s into the 60s, you'll see that Barbie that was getting sold with very little clothing for the initial dolls and then you would buy the packs to add on later. They started selling the Barbies more as fully complete dolls in the box that would have all of that stuff already with them. And then the idea was that you just collect all these different Barbies and would mix and match the clothes that way. There's all these different guides to all different Barbies. Many different sites will have mostly complete 
list. Moving into the 60s, through the 60s, you'll notice that they move away from the ponytail and also add the bubble cut style, which is where that's, again, like I said, that was influenced by Jackie Kennedy. As the years progressed, they started to focus more on, because the 70s was very much about straight and very long hair. Then when they moved into the 80s, it became more of like big hair kind of going out and up. The 90s was kind of a mixture of all of those things. Moving into the 2000s, we see a more standardized, a sleek, more polished look again. One of the very first vintage Barbie dolls is Fashion Queen Barbie. There is also Miss Barbie, Barbie Swirl Ponytail, and American Girl Barbie. There is also Color Magic Barbie. Color Magic Barbie is one of the hardest Barbies to find. This Barbie was released in 1966. And of course, we know Barbie as the iconic blonde Barbie. That is what we kind of associate when we think of Barbie. I am going to get into that a little bit later in my discussion of race. And so we're not just promoting an unhealthy body image, but Barbie, whether you want to hear this or not, or like it or not, very much is promoting white supremacy and a white beauty standard as well. So Barbie was initially sold as blonde, brunette, and redhead in some cases. And they did, of course, as I said, add other characters to sort of offset the ideal that they have now solidified with this blonde, blue-eyed, skinny Barbie doll that they have as the main one that everybody obviously wanted and the one that they promoted the most, especially in later years. Like, Barbie was always blonde Barbie, blonde, blue-eyed, as they refer to her in the movie, stereotypical Barbie. And then everyone else had their own name, or they were never truly acknowledged as another iteration of Barbie. It was just always became the blonde Barbie. The very cool thing about the dolls, and that's something that I'll speak to in a second about the design features and the all patents. There were a lot of really cool toy innovations that you saw through the years with Mattel and with Barbie dolls. And that's something that I think people really don't remember there were really cool add-ins and really cool different design and posing and like things that kids like just little scientific cool things that they would throw into the toys and kids like would lose their minds about this stuff. And that really speaks to sort of like the innovative mind that they had in terms of trying to make these toys interesting and do something that other companies weren't doing to keep the idea and the image of Barbie fresh. So Color Magic Barbie basically started out with golden blonde or black hair and it, there was a solution that I'm assuming was not very good for children at the time Late in later years they had the color changing hair Barbies that so you just added water to it. They would add some kind of like a spray in a bottle I think sometimes but that wasn't really a thing anymore because they were trying to move away from including chemicals in children's toys, <laughs> rightfully so The Color Magic Barbie, it was like the solution and you would put it on their hair and it would change it to a different color. And these now are one of the highest priced and hardest to find dolls of the Barbie line. Then around this time, around like 1963 to 1966, they brought out Midge. So Midge, I refer to my Barbie family tree here. So we've now gone down through the family tree from... Ruth Handler, the creator of Barbie, along with Elliot and Harold. 
she had her two children, Barbara and Ken, who then she named Barbie after. And then we've go- we're going into Midge, who also has some slight lore. So we know of Midge having a grandma and a grandpa. We know of Barbie having a grandmother, but not a grandfather, as far as I've researched. We also have Barbie's mother and father and a few aunts. We know that Barbie has, as far as the franchises have gone into, has uh, one, two, three, six official siblings, a bunch of cousins. And then Ken has not, not much is known about Ken. We know that Ken has a brother. Ken's friend Alan ended up marrying Midge. That's kind of all we know. So Midge ended up getting introduced in the 60s in response to the fact that, as I said, Barbie was seen as maybe a bit too sexual and mature. So Midge was introduced with basically the same body as Barbie, but a different face. The face of Midge was a little bit more of a childlike, had freckles, not as much makeup, and a little bit more of a conservative hairstyle, I guess you would say, than Barbie did. And so Midge was supposed to be, I guess, Barbie's less threatening friend. And they also did with this with Ken as well. So Ken had Alan, who's Ken's buddy, I guess, sort of like, again, a slightly younger, maybe looking, if anything, more approachable option for children. And so we've got going through now to the 70s. So as we move into the 70s, you're going to see a little bit more of a relaxed look for Barbie's outfits, a little bit more casual. There are still some some glamour fashion looks, some, some evening looks, but the focus now is going to be on Malibu Barbie. We're incorporating now some ideas of potential wedding looks for Barbie, but never an official, never an official wedding. We never acknowledge an official Barbie wedding. It's just She's just trying on. It's just a dream or a fantasy. That word is always implied in the introduction of Barbie wedding idea. The people getting married in the Barbie multiverse was always somebody else. And Barbie was always the bridesmaid and Ken was always the best man or a groomsman. But neither of them actually ever ended up getting married. And this is also where they introduced a very significant design feature for the doll itself, which was the twist and turn waist. So this was pioneered by Harold Matson. The ability for the Barbies to move the different parts of their bodies is usually referred to as articulation. So you'll see in various decades the addition or deletion of the ability for Barbie to articulate the head and neck, the different joints, elbow and knee joints, the wrists, sometimes individual sockets and things like that, the foot joints whether or not the arms and legs can bend or if they have actual like fully separate joint pieces put in place. And of course the waist articulation. So this is usually we've seen it. It was either stationary or would only go side to side. So what Mattel added with the twist and turn waist is they put the turn on an angle instead of straight across. So the Barbie would end up being able to twist in different ways. So it kind of looked more like they were dancing and it gave them a little bit more of an interesting, active aspect for kids to play with. So that was like a huge deal when they changed it up to include the twist and turn waist. They also had a talking Barbie that came out. 
So Talking Barbie, of course, that was a huge innovation to incorporate like the sort of electronic sort of function in there. That was a very big innovation. Of course, as we've seen with a lot of iterations of Talking Barbies, she didn't really have that much insightful stuff to say. Of course, as I said, they were still marketing this toy very much based on the social expectations of the day and in promoting Barbie's personality and appearance to be very devoid of a lot of substance. Not having a lot of cerebral, in-depth conversations about philosophy, quantum physics, and foreign relations and stuff like that. Barbie's lines were basically like, what shall I wear to the prom? And would you like to go shopping? And I love being a fashion model and stuff like that. So we've gone from Barbie not saying anything, being a very, just the, the silent eye candy. And then when she finally has something to say, it's, it's not anything that's really beneficial or groundbreaking to public, but that's where we started. That's where we've started with Barbie. And, and I didn't get too much better from there. But yeah, so maybe maybe the whole idea of talking Barbie wasn't super successful, but uh, that goes into so many other commentary and questions about women having a voice and someone else deciding what Barbie's going to say and what the intention is behind that and how that's going to affect the people listening to what she's saying. So now I've possibly got a whole generation of girls, only things that they think that they should be concerned with saying is, who they're going to the prom with and who's dating who and what their next outfit's going to be. They also have a lot of details about all of these Barbies of all of the different clothing pieces that they're supposed to come with, the exact type of makeup that they had on, all the different hair options, whether or not they had rooted eyelashes, whether or not the hair was molded, whether or not it was rooted, all of the different head forms. So... That's another big thing about Barbies, too, is that they had different head forms and shapes for Barbie that they changed up over the years. And they would recycle the different face and head forms for other named Barbie universe characters. But they had been previously used by like a different type of Barbie or like by a different doll. And they kind of just swap them out back and forth if they felt like they could kind of get away with it, I guess. I suppose it's very time consuming and expensive to make a different face form and a different head form every single time you have to make a doll. So I guess I understand that. So in the seventies is actually where you start seeing a a change as well in Barbie's head form. So they went from having the sideways looking glance to making Barbies with the front facing eyes. And so they, they wanted to include also a slightly different face shape, So they backed up a little bit off the makeup, made her look a little bit more natural. They added different bangs and they were really focusing once again on the 70s idea of the very straight hair, straight cut bangs and long hair. And this is where we now get into Malibu Barbie. This is the one where I was talking to with my mom as well. We've gone into twist and turn, all the different twist and turn and talking Barbie. So they came out with a talking Barbie, Stacy, Christy and PJ. Stacy, Christie, and PJ disappeared and reappeared in different iterations throughout the Barbie lore. Those ones didn't really last all that long. Christie is, in addition to some of the other Malibu Barbies, a big name character at the time. If only for now, in the, because in the Barbie universe, that was one of the first official black Barbies that wasn't just 
a Barbie that they use the same face structure and body type from the white Barbie and just made it black and kept like the exact same hair. And then they just made it black hair, like black color, not actually like black people hair. (laughs) That was a big significant thing in the seventies. And then we went to Malibu Barbie. So this is where we are focusing, as I said, on the beach loving Barbie they're focusing on, you know, going down to the beach, partying. We're kind of hearkening back to the whole original aesthetic of Barbie that was in the bathing suit. So we are kind of reinventing that in that time. I guess this was the 70s was the modern times. We've got both the originals, but they've also come out with reproductions of the Malibu Barbie. She's kind of known with not only the long hair, but she has a nice, very iconic blue bathing suit instead of the black and white zebra stripe what they have on the stereotypical barbie we see some updates here with accessories where you can get like surfboard and beach towels and then when they actually updated the malibu barbie for modern times they added like little barbie pool floaties and stuff like that some of the malibu barbies out of japan actually and actually quite a few of the dolls for out of japan if you look them up, that one in particular, there's a, quite a few that are very rare and hard to find in this Malibu line. And so this 1971 was where the first the Sunset Malibu Barbie came out. That kind of solidifies Barbie, especially in the minds of people, as this like blonde, tanned California valley girl. And that moved her away from sort of the, the more glamorous side of Barbie. Where So, yes, that in a way, that's kind of good because it kind of made it more relatable. It's not just, like, about high fashion and appealing to the richest of the rich and wanting to embody that. It was kind of nice to have Barbie return to a more natural and relatable character type. But as we know, Malibu in California is a pretty affluent area, so we're not complete like just having those two things together kind of still referencing that but yeah so this is where we see the new face sculpt for barbie definitely not one of my favorite face sculpts i'm more into the 80s face sculpts that they did and have kind of kept more or less the same since then i honestly that is my one of my favorite ones not with the teeth open with the closed mouth, but the teeth open's okay as well. There's a lot of debate over who likes different face sculpts more than others. And honestly, I just think the 70s Barbie face sculpt's a little whack. So once we move into the 80s, is I guess 90s is now also considered vintage for Barbie dolls. But anything after the 90s really isn't like super significant other than the Fashionistas line really. Other iconic Barbies from the 70s. I'll just look up a few because there was a couple other really nice ones. Uh, Superstar Barbie was one of them. So Superstar Barbie was one of the few 70s Barbies that kept kind of the, the glamour aspect. This was a Barbie that featured as well one of the first Barbies to feature the head-to-toe pink aesthetic that they ended up carrying into the 80s and beyond. But before that, Barbie was never really associated with pink all that much. All the outfits had varying different colors. And it was more about the adherence to having that very tailored and put together look rather than having it be a certain color. 
I have looked into a few different reasons as to why they kept going with the pink aesthetic. Really, the only reason I can find is that there was more of a of a desire for toy companies to color code toys based on gender. So they wanted to keep Barbie pink to enforce that it was a girl's toy and that, and, and just keep it as like a signature part of the line. But subconsciously, I think that was really why if it had been a boy's toy, they would have done more blue. And while they do try to put a bit more when they do marketing for Ken and some of the male dolls, it's, it's very much like girls are going to be buying the Ken doll. And of course, we've realized in recent years, like boys and girls both play with Barbies, but societally, boys are not encouraged to. It, it was very much a toy for girls. And so I think that's why they leaned into the pink. So we see in the 70s, Superstar Barbie is kind of in like this floor length gown. She's got the kind of pink boa sort of frilly thing around. That was a very good example of the style reflection of kind of like a night look. There's actually a really good site that, that looks up the most popular Barbie doll from when you were born. It goes like kind of year to year, the most iconic Barbie from each year. And as I said, in the seventies, they also branched out into doing some more careers choices for Barbie. So in the beginning, they started out with fashion designer Barbie. They started out with singer Barbie. I believe it was called Barbie in the spotlight. That's actually one of my, if I had to pick, that's the, from like the early 60s. And that's one of my favorite Barbies. And they also had flight attendant Barbie. They had career girl Barbie, which they kind of updated later to like day to night Barbie and working girl Barbie. At one of the first astronaut Barbies was in the 60s. And they kind of kept that on and off throughout the years. They also had a surgeon Barbie, which they introduced in 1973. Now she's in a incredibly like Barbie appropriate surgeon outfit. Like it's a short, like scrub dress with like a, a middle tie. Cause like, you're going to see that shape in the fucking surgery. <laughs> you go see that snatched waist in the OR. Then we also have Olympic skier Barbie who medaled in 1975. There was also gold medal Ken's as well. And of course, bar- ballerina Barbie. There was a whole bunch of different ones. Now, We're going to get into my favorite era of Barbies, which is the 80s. I personally feel like while I do appreciate the looks from some of the other eras and while the 90s was my age of Barbie for sure, I personally think that the 80s Barbies were just speaking to the excess of the decade and just the just the explosion of how big children's toy market got in the 80s that I think that's where we really see some of the best and like best pulled off and like just most iconic styles of Barbie for me personally. And ones that I find the most aesthetically appealing. The eighties is also where you're going to see the Barbie font of the logo change from kind of like that more handwritten cursive calligraphy writing to what we see more of now as the Barbie logo, which is more of like a, a stylized bubble font and that particular font is, I, I love. There's just something about it that is just so like perfect for what Barbie is. And, and I just really like that sort of retro look to it. So of course, Barbie's drawing on previous types of font. The more handwritten one is referred to as the Dolly script, but there's been so many iterations of um what the font is 
So the one that I'm referring to is basically kind of like, and the eighties one in particular, it's got like this, the white font and then it's popped by like the pink shadow sort of in the background that's sort of like outlining it. And it's characterized by like a kind of like curly bottom of the B. And so that's, that's the one that I like the best. I think that is the most like iconic and perfect Barbie font. They kind of go through all the different logos through the years and how they've changed. So they have actually that that specific Barbie font with the, with the background on the white font was very specific to the early eighties they changed it to kind of remove the white and made the the font itself pink throughout the middle of the eighties. And then going into the nineties until now they've returned to sort of that handwritten look, but I don't know. I personally really like that eighties style myself. And then they also had in the eighties, I think just some of the more interesting things that happened to Mattel as a company so those are those very much influenced what the brand looked like. So in the early 80s, of course, we talked about how they had I'll, I'll discuss I'll discuss Black Francie a little bit later in the episode. And I will talk about Christie as well and some of the other black African American non-white Barbies that they've come out with over the years. But 1980 is where they released the first African American Barbie. This is where they actually came out with Barbie, but the black version. Now, I'm a little bit torn about the fact that they still need to call her Black Barbie. They, they couldn't just like come out with Barbie and then just have her be black in the box. They had to kind of just, they had to say on the box, this is Black Barbie. But... Uh, like so that in, in what I mean by that is implying that the de- like like we said before that the default Barbie is white, where it's like if Barbie exists as a representation of all women and all humans, it should not be assumed that the default Barbie is white, but that's how it was designed. So there you go. And so to have to define it as like they don't call white Barbie white Barbie, they just call her Barbie. So why do we need to call Black Barbie Black Barbie? is basically what I'm trying to point out here. But at the time, of course, it was still very important because now we finally don't have a black Barbie toy that is a different name that's like a sidekick, some character that's going to be around and get discontinued in a couple years. We actually now have canonically the fact that Barbie exists as a black woman. So this Barbie as well actually has one of my more favorite outfits of some of the Barbies too. They gave her this really cool, like disco inspired short, like a little bit almost floor length dress and has like a really long slit up the side. It's got like arm cutouts and this really cool, like big gold necklace on it. They gave her like a a little curly, like sort of Afro inspired Maybe she got a little bit of relaxer done. It's kind of like a, like a, like a similar, it's very reminiscent of sort of like a bubble cut mixed with an Afro, I would say. And uh, they gave her like nice shoes and the earrings to go with it. So this is the same time as they debuted the first Hispanic Barbie. So up until the eighties, we have not had a Barbie that was called the, the main character energy Barbie 
that was not white. The, it'll, black characters in Barbie only existed as secondary characters. So now we have Barbie existing as the potential for it to be different races, which is very significant, especially for representation of children playing with the toy. And they've also done studies on the opinions of, of black children playing with toys that are predominantly white. And even if they have the option to play with a black toy versus a white toy, there's because the beauty standard is so ingrained in their minds, a lot of black children will say that they prefer the white toy and will say that it's more attractive than the black toy. And also in speaking and comparing it with themselves, that they don't think they're as attractive. Their internalized racism and their inability to see that there's different uh, ways of being beautiful other than just the blonde, blue-eyed, white standard that Barbie has set. And like a certain body type as well, right? So there's so many things that we recognize in the release of this doll that are just so crucial to how children see themselves in play. It just opened up a whole other level of that confidence for women to know that it's not just a certain type of woman who's allowed to exist, who's allowed to play with a Barbie doll or aspire to the life that she has. We know that now different races can, and ethnic backgrounds can also be included in that. And I think that's really great. As somebody who noticed that the older I got, noticing that a lot of the toys I played with didn't represent me, um, it's very important to have that as young as you can get so that you feel like there's a place for you in society. Um, the eighties is also the release of the one, another of the more popular and rare collectible Barbies, the golden dream Barbie. Uh, this is a really good, um, Barbie in terms of showing that transition from the seventies to the eighties. We're still seeing a lot of that kind of like gold lame, that sort of like over the top sort of night club, club 54 vibe opulence of the golden dreams barbie it's like a full gold lame like off the shoulder jumpsuit with a cape we've also got introduction of dream date barbie roller skating barbie the day to night barbie which is giving a lot of like nine to five jane fonda dolly parton vibes there's a lot of criticism of this doll as well though because had two basically completely separate outfits going from day to night. So it's not really a day to night. It's, it was literally a, co a full costume change. Whereas the Ken day to night, I think all that it did was like he changed his tie. I'm like, that's what day to night is supposed to be. You're only supposed to change a couple things on the outfit and then you're appropriate to go from day to night. You don't like come with a full outfit underneath your other outfit. That's not what day to night is. But anyway, this is the expectations of women in society, of course. That's what Day to Night was, I guess, back then. The briefcase was just a suitcase for her second outfit. I don't know. There was another astronaut Barbie that was released in the 80s. Fashion Barbie, which was kind of what we sort of think about when we think of the 80s. Uh, the big hair, kind of like the bright colored tights with the leg warmers. We've got a few other different army inspired Barbies that started coming out in the early 90s. Of course, I mentioned Great Shape Barbie. There was a lot in the 80s. There was a lot of focus on aerobics. That whole, like the 80s was very big for that. So they had a whole like full spandex suited Barbie with the leg warmers. 
there was like a great shape can as well. And they had like little barbells and, and stuff like that, little weights and things like that. I just like, yeah, I just love that the, the 80s style ones just speak so well to what was going on at the time in terms of what was going on in pop culture and people's pastimes and the fashions and stuff. So I'll also take this moment to talk about one of my favorite things about the 80s as well. And one of the more controversial Mattel moments, which is Barbie and the Rockers. So the dawn of MTV gave music a brand new outlet in the form of visual music videos. And this also led to some more influence on Barbie aesthetic and focus groups, which led to some other controversial dolls later on as well. But this is one of the first ones. So, and this wasn't so much of a public controversy as it was an example of Mattel being shady and doing whatever it took to beat out other companies to sales and to market. So a lot of you may remember, or maybe, maybe not directly remember, but have heard of or are aware of a little TV show called Gem in the Holograms. One of my favorite, favorite cartoons. And so Gem in the Holograms is an animated series came out uh, between 1985 to 1988 and Mattel did not have the rights to produce the toys for Gem and the Holograms. Hasbro did. Hasbro and Kenner were the other two really big toy manufacturers of the time. Hasbro, of course, was like very much linked to a lot of the popular TV shows and animated shows and cartoons for kids at the time and kind of had a lot of that business. And Kenner did Star Wars and other things like that. So they were the other two big toy companies. So when Gem and the Holograms came out as a show, Gem and the Holograms was very prolific in terms of the amount of music that they had on the show. There were so many original songs that were actually good fucking songs. And they had just a, a really cool understanding of where the, the interest of kids was in terms of the mixture of the music aspect, but also the fantasy aspect of the show. So because of how cartoons and stuff were and still are, there had to be a toy tie-in and they were planning on releasing an entire line of toys of representing each character in the show, both the holograms and the misfits and a couple of the other characters. And they were going to have a full line of dolls with all their own instruments and the different hair color changes and stuff like that, because Jem has like the whole Hannah Montana thing going on. So they had to make like two different dolls for Jem and then a couple different dolls for the friends and then like some toys for the misfits, like the synergy toy, a Rio toy and all the different ones. So Mattel obviously finds this out that the show is dropped and that there's going to be a toy line to coincide with it and that they're basically going to annihilate anybody else in the market in terms of toy sales within the next couple of years. So as far as I understand if you watch the documentaries and, and learn a little bit about this whole sort of back and forth fighting between how Jem came out. So Jem versus Mattel. Mattel found out that Jem was going to be releasing these toys. And normally it takes about 18 months, they said, for a toy to be released to the market from the beginning of like the design concept to actually getting all the toys made and produced doing quality testing, and then getting it to market. This is the response toy 
called Barbie and the Rockers. Hey, buddy. <laughs> so, um, uh, basically, Mattel figured out kind of more or less the aesthetic that Jem was going for, tailored it a little bit more to be specific to Barbie, and then came out with Barbie and the Rockers line. And so, just to give you an idea, Hasbro's most known toy and, and most popular toy is the Easy Bake Oven. And Hasbro is also known more for like board games and, and puzzles and a lot electronic games as well. Mattel plays more on the maximizing the small demographic that it has, essentially. And only in recent years has it started branching out into doing some other things. But basically, like Hasbro having more options for people versus Mattel trying to kind of capitalize on that small window of time that children are going to be playing with toys. It's just like a a slightly different approach to how they sell. So having the ability to have a TV show to, to as a vehicle for sales, kind of even the playing field for both of them. And Mattel just was that much more on the ball about it. And they basically beat Hasbro to the release of Gem and the Holograms toys by, I believe, four months, they said. And Barbie and the Rockers came out. And then when Gem and the Holograms, when Hasbro finally released that toy line, everybody thought that they were copying Mattel. They essentially thought that they saw Mattel's thing and that they came out with the whole show and concept of the toys to play off of what Mattel had done, which is exactly what they were hoping for. So Mattel ended up taking all of the sales and all of the hype before Gem and the Holograms could. So while Gem had, you know, the sales of the the music from the show, and they still did fairly well when they did finally release the toys, it was nowhere near what they would have done if they had beat Mattel to it. But that's business, I guess. And so, yeah, the scruples were not scrupling that day. And um, they were feeling especially petty, I suppose. And they decided to screw over Hasbro. Yeah, because when you think about it, Hasbro really does have the upper hand. And they ended up getting the upper hand in later years. They had a lot more toys that were interesting. Whereas Mattel was really still just relying on Barbie very much for their revenue. And when you look at the dolls side by side, it's very clear that Barbie took a lot of the initial things from the gem look. For example, the same color palette of sort of pink, purple, blue, and silver also kept like the very quintessential looking sort of triangle sort of shaped belt that gem has. They kept that in there. It's sort of like going back to the whole build Lily thing. If you look at the dolls side by side, it's very clear that Gem and the holograms had enough information out there that Mattel could do some research and figure out how all the dolls were going to look and replicate it to almost the exact same degree. But honestly, because as somebody who loves music and somebody who really thinks that that is, I don't know, it's, it's a great line. And I think both of them did such a great job. It, it's a shame about what happened with it in terms of the infighting. But that's another very significant thing that happened in the 80s in terms of Mattel. So I'm going to take a second here and go back to some of the drama within Mattel because it's worth mentioning at this point in the story. 
So as we're going into from the 70s to the 80s, we've already acknowledged Mattel has been breaking into the market with more TV commercials. Since Barbie was one of the first toys like this on the market, they had kind of the first ability to get in on commercials for uh, television advertisements. And coming out of the 70s and into the 80s, Mattel was found guilty of issuing misleading financial reports, and Elliot and Ruth Handler were basically banished from the company. They were no longer allowed to have any involvement in it. A former Mattel vice president, Arthur S. Spear, took control of the company in 1975. By the 1980s, Ruth Handler had sold all her stock and kind of given up the company. That was where they started to kind of move into the more modern age. Between this time, between Ruth leaving the company and female CEOs taking back over again and more female designers taking over in terms of how Barbie was going to be looking and, and portrayed, there was definitely some poor choices made in terms of certain dolls that were released, which I'll, I'll go into in a second. There was a few different things where in the 80s, the slacking sales after the Masters of the Universe action figure line sales had dropped, it was basically being held up by like all these different firms in terms of money, but they were hemorrhaging money. They needed some new ideas. So they ended up focusing on some of their core brands. The whole Barbie and the Rockers thing really did help them in the 80s to kind of get back to where they wanted to be. And then by the 90s, they had secured the rights to Walt Disney for back in 1988, they started to talk to Disney about having Mattel products and producing stuff for Disney. So that really helped them too. There was a little bit of a gap in terms of their working with Disney, but because of kind of like lit location of production, more or less, but they started again in the 90s. And they started to focus on some of their other brands, more notably Fisher Price, American Girl Dolls, Polly Pocket, and Uno card game. So those all helped to kind of bolster their sales going forward. Yeah, they ended up acquiring all of those other new brands, like more into the 90s and the 2000s. In 1985, they launched the Week Girls Can Do Anything campaign. And that was the first sort of real push in the Mattel advertising to appeal to women's futures and the ability for girls to imagine themselves as choosing whatever career and occupation that they wanted to. This is where the, as I mentioned, the day to night Barbie was a day going day to night as a CEO. So this was to celebrate that first, where we first start to see that in the job market. So a lot of big things happened in the eighties that started paving the way for Mattel to remain a big player in the toy game. So now we're going to go into what I remember as what the Barbies I played with as a child, the 90s. So the very best of 90s Barbie. This is where you're going to start seeing a lot of Barbies that are focusing once again on beach, on the Cali aesthetic. There's a lot of mermaid and Hawaiian-inspired aesthetic that you're going to see in the 90s Barbies. We're going to see a little bit more of the active Barbies, rollerblading Barbie, gymnast Barbie. We're seeing a few other introductions or reintroductions of occupations like teacher Barbie, vet Barbie, dentist Barbie. Some of the most iconic ones from the 90s that you'll hear about the most are totally hair Barbie, 
which I definitely had. I had totally hair Barbie and I had glitter hair Barbie. Those were both characterized by having extremely long hair, which was had, you know, a very prominent poofy bang or some kind of like height going on near the front of the hair. Parts of it were crimped or some, some kind of like wavy, slight waviness to it. It would come with glitter and, or, or the, the Totally Hair Barbie came with a little thing of depth gel that you could use on the Barbie or on yourself. And that was like a huge vibe. As somebody who grew up pre- basically dependent on hair gel, I really appreciated the, the slight representation in this Barbie. Just like the length of the hair, they kind of gave the Barbie, like when the 60s aesthetic started coming back in the 90s, they kind of gave her this like 60s pattern inspired, kind of like a Pucci inspired mini dress and some earrings and shoes to match. And yeah, I just remember the hair was was gorgeous. That is one of the more expensive and popular ones that you'll find now. They made so many of them that a lot of people have them. But to find one that's in really good condition is apparently not easy. The Sparkle Eyes Barbie was also one of my favorites. This was one of the few, like, super glam Barbies, and she had these, like, little, th- like, diamondy, like, shiny things they put in her eyeballs. I'm not really sure. It was, like, giving, like, a, t- a turnaround bright eyes sort of vibe, I guess. That one Barbie with the neon rollerblades was was a whole-ass vibe the, with, the, with the rollerblades that would light up when you move them across the floor. Those were dope. The glitter hair Barbie had like a little like sort of cropped shirt with like a a palm tree on it and then you could like put glitter all over it and shit i definitely had a mermaid barbie if not a little mermaid barbie then uh just like a normal mermaid barbie i believe there was a baywatch barbie so there were a lot of really good and the 90s is where you're gonna also start to see like i said a lot of the collector dolls start to come out so a lot of the designer collabs a lot of the celebrity collabs and um, all the Disney collabs. So this is where you're going to see that explosion of dolls that are specifically for the adult collector market. They, they had Dolls of the World that had come out in previous years, but there's a whole new iteration of Dolls of the World that come out in the 90s. So that's kind of where you'll see that's what's iconic about the 90s time. Now moving into Barbie in the 2000s. What's very notable about the 2000s is the War with Bratz dolls. This started in 2001, so basically right at the beginning of the 2000s. The Bratz doll line came out. Bratz basically brought a more youthful and modern style choice for girls in terms of uh, having a more, I guess you would say, quote unquote, urban aesthetic, something that Barbie had tried to incorporate in uh, here and there with the doll, but it, it very much kept it as a very like clean cut, very like wholesome vibe for the most part in terms of the outfits. Whereas Bratz kind of brought a very like edgy, and way cooler look for people that was not just reminiscent of sort of, like I said, the music industry, which it was very much referenced by, but also just uh, a more culturally diverse 
option for people in terms of both the races of all the dolls, which were all different ethnicities and races right off the bat, but that brought in terms of their makeup look and their clothing choices, something that was a little bit more risque for girls and something that they found more relatable in terms of both how the dolls looked representing themselves and also just something different in terms of the type of aesthetic that the doll brought. So Mattel was very much shook by this introduction of Bratz and they did not do well for a while because of that. I just watched something very recently. There's a scene in the Barbie movie where Barbie's talking to those girls at the table. There's four girls there and they're talking about how it's like, oh, we haven't played with Barbie since we were like five years old. They're supposed to represent the Bratz dolls and that each of them have the same name as all the Bratz dolls. And they made them look like similar to each one of the, with the corresponding name and stuff like that. So I I thought that was kind of interesting. If that is true, then that's very funny. And um, that's, that's just a a recent little conspiracy, like deep dive on the, on the new movie that just came out. So um, once again, Mattel's going to react by choosing violence most of the time in these cases, because they don't want to be taken down by a different company. So this, Toy Bratz was marketed towards tweens, which covered the target age group for Barbie's toys as well. Basically, um, Barbie came out with a kind of a copycat line at the time to sort of compete with Bratz, but it did not make up for the loss of market share. Um, and so they went back and forth in court and stuff with all that, all that shit, just like they did with all the other companies that they went up against. And then slightly later on down the line, Barbie released its fashionistas line, which was again, a direct commentary on brats. And so that's introducing Barbies with different body types, different races, different hair options, and uh, with more updated fashionable outfits, uh, possibilities for them to wear. So Bratz, of course, was also slammed for presenting a makeup look and uh, certain physical attributes of the dolls that were deemed too sexual for the age groups that they were being presented to. So they had a similar issue in that case, just like Mattel did. Uh, So it seems like these companies are trying to, from all these previous iterations of dolls, are trying to promote this sort of weird fusion of girlhood and womanhood in one doll and that can lead to problematic results for sure. So I, I, it's very interesting because it seems like most of the time when I'm reading about this, it's it's more the adults that are having issues with these things than any of the kids that are playing with the dolls. This is not anything that these kids are really thinking about. It's really the, the parents that get up in arms about how the portrayal is, really. So that's kind of funny. Which will now lead us into some of the controversies of the Barbie concepts themselves as well as uh just ending up with some of the controversies of the legal issues within mattel and the creators and stuff like that um and then just kind of a wrap up on ruth handler and her life and and kind of how she was as a person too so now that we've kind of gone through the whole history of some of the different types of barbies and uh why they came about 
we'll go into the top controversial Barbies. Starting with Growing Up Skipper. I'm not sure what they... It seems like, I guess in someone's head, it would have been an interesting and good idea, in theory, to come up with this kind of doll. So, again, Skipper was introduced as Barbie's younger sister, one of, I think, five or six siblings that Barbie has in the Barbie universe. And so we've got Barbie as the more sophisticated, older, more mature sister, and Skipper is, like, the sort of preteen going into teen, uh, again, something a little bit less threatening and potentially more suited to a younger child playing with these toys as well. And then it also creates a little bit more of opportunities for scenario options when they're playing. If there's like another relative there, like you can create some more storylines and things like that. So they came up with a doll called Growing Up Skipper. So one of the articulations that they added was an arm that would wind all the way back and forward. So Skipper started out a little bit shorter and with a flat chest. And so when you would turn her arm all the way, she would grow tits. And when you pulled it back, they would go away. And also when you turn the arm, she would get taller. And then when you turn the arm again, she would get shorter. So it was supposed to signify Skipper's like move in, into through puberty into becoming a older teenager But this doll was not received very well. A lot of people were very upset by this doll. I think there have been other dolls that were, you know, questionable as well. I'm not super, I'm not really sure how I, essentially I feel about how inappropriate it was. Um, Obviously kids need to learn about puberty and stuff, but also, yes, I see the problematic aspect of creating a doll with growing boobies. Um... Again, intention and nuance. I I think that I believe when I was watching some of the documentaries and some of the interviews with people with uh, Mattel at the time, this was when this was one of the brief periods where Mattel was run by men. And uh, this was apparently the result of their poor judgment in terms of uh, a toy idea. So that was that did not last very long. We have, of course, as I mentioned, the sleepover Barbie with the scale and the do not eat book. Uh, We've already talked about that. Pregnant Midge. Um, So this was a Barbie that came out a little bit later on. And so, uh, as I mentioned before, Midge was the friend that, you know, was was able to get married and uh, was, was the one getting pregnant and having kids. So when Pregnant Midge came out, it was uh, very much criticized because as we're, as we're supposed to be, um, acknowledging Midge was possibly still a teenager. That's the little thing about Barbie is that technically Barbie based on her year of inception is supposed to be, I believe in like her like fifties or sixties now, but Barbie is also portrayed as a teenager. And that's kind of the same with Midge, right? So like Midge is getting married and having kids, but is Midge still a teen bride and a teen mom, or is she now considered to be an adult? It's never really made explicitly clear. So now we have a thing where we've got uh, pregnant Midge, and she had a belly that you could take off, and there was actually, like, the baby inside the belly, and you could, like, pop it back on, and, like, take the baby out and put the belly back on and then give her the baby like she had it, right? 
But that wasn't really what everyone was. So that wasn't the controversial part of it. The controversial part was that they were concerned that it was going to promote teen pregnancy to children. So they wanted to make it very clear that Midge was an adult and that she was married to her baby daddy and that they were in like at least in a stable relationship and she wasn't like a single teen mom. And they also like were complaining about the fact that she didn't have a wedding ring on and all this stuff. Forgetting, of course, that in the States, there are a lot of different rules for what the appropriate marriage age is and whether or not a child, technically still a child, a minor, can still get married with a gar- parental or guardian consent. So they're they're complaining about something that forgetting that like teen pregnancy and marriage is still a huge issue in the States and a big symbol of lack of education about sex and protection, as well as um, people getting taken advantage of, getting groomed, and pedophilia and incest and all this other stuff resulting in teen pregnancies, as much as it is about teenagers fooling around with each other and getting knocked up, there's a lot of other issues going on that result in teen pregnancy and teen marriage in the States. That's just a whole other fucking problem. But yeah, pregnant Midge didn't last long either. Um, so once again, I'm a little torn about the actual controversial nature of that. I think that people should be learning about pregnancy and, and how that works. Um, maybe not the best executed toy, but maybe not in, as controversial as people were making it out to be. I, again, I, I think it's about interpretation and, and stuff as well. There were some religious-related Barbies, a hijabi Barbie, Um, which some people thought was very progressive while other people did not appreciate it. Um, There was, um, there was a, there were a couple that were actually referenced in the Barbie movie. Uh, So Alan, for example, which as I was mentioning with Midge, Alan is supposed to be Midge's husband. And (laughs) I'm just remembering now from the movie, honestly, Michael Sarah did such an amazing fucking job as Alan. I, I, I really need to give him a shout out. Just anything Michael Sarah does is, is great. Anything, anytime he they put him in something funny and he just does his Michael Sarah thing, it, it cracks me up every single fucking time. I, you all know what I'm talking about. They, he just does his like deadpan, very quiet, mild mannered Michael Sarah shit. Is it even actor? Is it even him being an actor? Is that just him being Michael Sarah? And it's amazing every time. His the choice to make him Alan was perfect, and so Alan in the beginning. Actually, Midge and Alan both got discontinued and then brought back. There was some controversy about Alan because, so Alan was marketed as Ken's buddy. And all of Alan's clothes and Ken's clothes were supposed to fit each other. Now, uh, say what you will about Barbie and Ken supposedly being in a heterosexual monogamous relationship, but... The fact that Ken and Alan seemed to be quite close to the fact that they were sharing each other's clothing, I don't think I need to explain any further how, how gay that is. And in back in the day, obviously, being in a gay relationship, male or female, was not accepted. So the fact that Barbie for so long, and even, even up to this day, really, like they really don't branch out into acknowledging same-sex relationships to the Barbie universe, like, at all. And there was a big joke with the Barbie movie as well, where it's like, if I don't see Barbie scissoring, this movie is not accurate, and I, I don't want it. 
And I'm going to say they could have they could have referenced it a lot more. I think they could have referenced the the lesbian aspect of Barbie a lot whole lot more. They very much alluded to it with Ken throughout the entire movie, but I really don't think they went into detail enough about the fact that I think a lot of girls start playing with Barbie as an ideal of what they want to be, but a lot of times it turns into an ideal of the type of person they're attracted to. It it kind of gives you a sense of like and then for a lot of guys, th- of course, as I like there's that realization that you know like I'm into more feminine things that may not necessarily even mean you're gay. It just means that that's the kind of toy you like to play with, right? So the fact that Barbie became so tied to sexuality and gender and how you present your sexual orientation to the world is was still so sequestered into these little boxes. And through this just children naturally playing and figuring out who they are as people, they're already figuring out before they even realize it, before they're even realizing it, how they want to be in terms of like relationships and in terms of like discovering as a, when they turn into adults, what their sexuality is and, and what it all means. So this is where we're getting into sort of the more gay presenting Ken dolls. There was animal Eleven Ken who featured an ascot and leopard print animal print shirt. Um, I personally think Ken's aesthetic from the beginning was I admit, quite a little bit stereotypically gay, but that's also very much the style of what men's clothing was at the time. So it's hard for me to say that because I think that was just, it was just a different aesthetic of the time. As you get more into like the eighties and nineties and now you see that some of the fashion choices that Mattel made were very overtly gay and they apparently didn't realize it. And it's not wrong to want to present that aesthetic to people, but apparently it caused controversy. So in addition to the animal love and Ken, we also had park Das park sugar daddy. Ken, there was some kind of like sugar daddy Ken that they brought out and ended up taking away. There was a totally style and tattoos Barbie that they came out with, which they because they were concerned that it was going to it was like promoting unsafe tattoos and minors getting tattoos there was an oreo fun barbie which was i don't know if you guys know this but apparently there was a black version of the doll and people were then very quick to point out that the term oreo is kind of a derogatory term that is used against people who with darker skin complexions who are like actually white on the inside like they were they're they're they look black but are like culturally and how they act are white which is an insult that a lot of people use to like say that someone's not really black that sort of like old bullshit so that doll did not last long for that specific reason probably for good reason like i can totally see why somebody would would call that out the teen talk barbie um, is another very iconic and controversial Barbie. So one of the talking Barbies, it seems like they, these talking Barbies never do very well. They came out with, of course, very uh, hearkening back to the very airheaded sounding lines of, I love shopping and I don't I don't think I'll ever have enough clothes or, some, or like, let's go to the party, things like that. And of course, the iconic line, math class is tough, which was taken out of the doll's lexicon and the doll was then discontinued uh after that 
So this was considered to be quite sexist, this line, implying that because Barbie as a girl is saying that math class is tough, it's implying that math for girls is hard and it's therefore going to discourage girls from wanting to do math. I think that with all of the other lines that she says considered, I, I can see why people would say that it's sexist. In, in terms of what she's saying, all of the other stuff that is, they're very like fluff and like lighthearted sort of not things that aren't very serious. And then on top of that, you're now adding the thing where like, I don't really like school and math is hard for me. And I, I don't really care much about that. I'm more concerned with shopping and boys. That's not really a great attitude to be giving to Barbie. Like she could have had a line that was like, like I finally got an A in math or something like that to say like there was at least some kind of growth of her getting better at math. Things like that have been suggested as possible workarounds to those things. I think it's just very much Mattel, I think, I guess, had this idea of what they still thought girls were interested in talking about or what they thought girls should be talking about and wanted to portray that in a doll where people from the outside who are actually more critical of the type of toys that kids should be getting exposed to and getting and playing with have much different opinions on that. There were a couple other Barbies as well that came out that as technology improved, they started having Wi-Fi capabilities and you could actually record stuff on them and you could upload and download things through the Barbies. This very quickly, however, was discovered to be a huge security risk for identity theft and for predators and stuff like that and and the release of of, uh, very critical information. So those were discontinued very quickly to avoid kids getting into those situations. There was uh, Share a Smile Becky, who was one of Barbie's first wheelchair-bound dolls. And Mattel released this doll without thinking about all the other accessories and Barbie pieces that went with all the other dolls. So people that started buying these dolls, the Becky doll, soon found out that the wheelchair was not accessible. The Barbie dream house was not accessible for the wheelchair and they, the wheelchair would not fit in the elevator of the Barbie dream house. So they've just like real life, they've created the situation where, okay, we've made a doll. So we're inclusive now, but they, even in the Barbie world, the Barbie world is not made for this, this doll that requires the use of a wheelchair. Very interesting that the same issues plaguing us in real life are also plaguing Barbies. Mattel ended up fixing this a little bit. There was a dog that they came out with, a golden retriever that like would actually poop out after eating the food and Barbie could pick it up with the pooper scooper, <laughs> which is actually so funny. I imagine like making a, a cat lady Barbie where like you have to scoop the shit out of the litter box. <laughs> this was also controversial more so because to keep all the stuff up inside the dog, similar to, I guess, like the Midge doll, they had to put like magnets and all this attachment shit on to like keep the parts of the dog together. And both between the pieces of poop and the magnets coming out, it proposed a huge health risk for kids. So they had to discontinue it. There was a sports illustrated swimsuit issue, Barbie. There was the infamous computer engineer Barbie, which coincided with a book where basically she is a completely inept computer engineer and basically relies on all the guys for help and then takes all the credit for their work after. So it's like super duper cringe. 
they ended up fixing both the doll and getting rid of that book. So that was good. And then, of course, we have Earring Magic Ken. So probably one of the most controversial Barbie dolls that they came out with. So Earring Magic Ken is featured in briefly in the Barbie movie. Earring Magic Ken is basically also referred to as Gay Ken or Faye Ken. So in the early 90s, there was an Earring Magic Barbie and an Earring Magic Ken that both came out at the same time. But no one gives a fuck about Earring Magic Barbie. Everyone only talks about the Ken. And the reason is because of the outfit that they gave the doll. So there was yet another focus group involving, at the time, there was some early talk about whether Ken was still going to be Barbie's boyfriend. Um, If you look into the Barbie lore, Barbie and Ken ended up breaking up for a little bit. She got together with some guy named Blaine and I think somebody else. And then they got back together. Now, as far as the storyline goes, they are just good friends. Um, It still never came out if Ken was gay or not. Still never came out if Barbie was gay or not. If they were just like each other's beards or something for all that time. That was very much a thing back in the day. So it's it's very possible that that was the thing. Or maybe they're both bi or pan. Not really sure. Maybe, maybe they're both drag queens. Maybe they're both trans. I have a lot of personal opinions about Barbie as... Because both Barbie and Ken don't technically have any genitals, they don't really have a biological sex. And as we've already talked about how society is imposing what our genders are on us, and we just decide whether we like that or not and decide to vibe with that based on whether or not it matches with our sex doesn't always stick. There's a lot of uh, options of what you could consider Barbie to be and what Ken, what you could consider Ken to be and not to, to be or not to be to Barbie or not to Barbie. That is the question. So we've got, a a bunch of focus groups that said, how can we make Barbie and Ken look cooler? So we also had a lot of the African-American Barbies rocking different accessories, including the single earring and stuff like that. And that was an accessory that everybody thought was super cool. So we have to remember, they're not only pulling aesthetic choices from the black community, but also the gay community, the LGBTQ community as well. But they were pulling those references perhaps without realizing it because what they thought that they were only referencing was the popular aesthetic that people looked at in music videos when they went to raves. That was where teenagers and young kids idea of coolness was coming from at the time. Remember, as I said, MTV had just come out and people are getting their inspiration from all the major artists of the time, their backup dancers Um, what people are wearing to clubs and parties and raves. But what they don't realize is that so much of that aesthetic is influenced by gay culture. And a lot of the performers were queer. That that's an aesthetic that they're bringing in without knowing all of the significances of some of like the secret signifiers of having a single earring or the idea that men are wearing purple and pleather and mesh and leather and different accessory cuffs and that perhaps signaling to other people in the real world that that's a gay man and also of course we have the infamous necklace so it was never really an issue well it was sort of an issue that ken was wearing the earring that was only part of it though the issue that people had is that ken 
was wearing this necklace that looked suspiciously like a cock ring. And allegedly, this was something that guys were wearing at different parties because they were trying to show each other that they were DTF, which is why they had this necklace on. So with all of the different things together, the necklace, the earring, the vest, the color of the vest, the haircut and all and everything else, because it was so aggressively stereotypical in like signifying the gay aspect of the character, this led to a lot of gay men buying the doll up and there was a huge demand. It had completely sold out by Christmas season of that year and it is the best-selling Ken doll in Mattel history. And this is all because of the, the gay dudes who were buying the doll, not the children. This is the, like, big turning point, right? And so now we actually see in a lot of the collector side of things, there are actually, it is quite dominated by a lot of gay men who, as we've learned, of course, enjoyed playing with the Barbies as children themselves or who saw this aesthetic in Barbie and, and resonate with it. And, and then especially what seeing stuff like Earring Magic Ken, that's representation. Whether it's intentional or not, we'll take it, right? So this is a whole thing now where we talk about as well some of the designer collaborations with Barbie and so many of the extravagant and elaborate designs were pioneered by a lot of gay men within Mattel. And so much of Barbie's fashions are influenced by a culture that was first influenced by queer aesthetic. So those are all the controversial Barbies for the most part that we have countered. This was, unfortunately it was discontinued, but this is, there's, there's different reasons as to why people think it got discontinued. But some people say that Earring Magic Ken and Barbie were supposed to be se- sort of seasonal toys anyway, so they would have gotten pulled eventually anyway. But the controversy, I guess, didn't help. They wouldn't have lasted too long anyway because of that. Well, hi there. Congratulations on making it to the commercial break. So glad to still see you watching and listening. This is a great time to do something with your free time. I wonder what you could do with this brief commercial break. I'm not going to tell you what you should do, but maybe you have some ideas. Maybe you're doing those things alone. Maybe you're doing those things with a partner. Maybe you're wondering, how can I make this break even more interesting? Well, I'll tell you. Why not try some wonderful products from Love Shop? For example, we have these beautiful nipple pasties and clamps, rainbow themed, perfect for nipple play, perfect for going out to a nightclub or a rave, and especially for pride. We love the rainbow aesthetic. We've also got, for those of you who are into the anal option, we're providing some very cute toys for anal play of all different sizes from beginner to expert. We've even got a whole variety of vibrators, dildos, and clitoral stimulators, including this brand new one that I just picked up, the O-Touch Kitty. 
This is a cute little clit stimulator with an adorable cat paw feature. And it's very simple to use. Only has three speeds and two buttons. But please believe me, it is extremely powerful. Those are all the speeds that you will need for this toy. I've been having a lot of fun with this one. And right now, we still have a discount code that you can use, FANTASY10. That's F-A-N-T-A-S-Y-1-0. Please go to the Love Shop website, loveshoptoys.com, and you can use that code for an extra 10% off your purchase. And please stay on the lookout with future episodes because I will be doing a giveaway of some items very soon. So that may include this toy right here. That may include some of the accessories you've seen here. Maybe some bigger ticket items. You'll just have to stay tuned to find out. Now, I certainly hope that you will take a nice long extended break before you come back to the podcast so that you're all refreshed and relaxed and ready to listen to the second half. Round twos are very important, and I'd like you to rest up just to make sure that you have the energy. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for your patronage of Love Shop Toys. And I look forward to showing you some more exciting little treats and fun items that I'm going to pick up for myself, and I'm hopefully going to share my experience with them with all of you. Please keep checking out the podcast, all the social media, and Patreon for any future giveaway and coupon code updates. And once again, please enjoy this episode of Fantasy Tavern. Bye. So anyway, where was I? So we went through all the controversial Barbies. We're going to go quickly through the development of Black Barbie and Kitty Black Perkins, who is one of the most well-known designers at Barbie. She was a chief designer of fashions and doll concepts for Barbie for over 25 years. Her real name is Luvania. And so she oversaw the design of the first black Barbie, as we mentioned before, in the early 80s. This was a, not a Shawnee and Friends. This wasn't a Christie or a Black Francie or some other sidekick or accomplice or accessory to Barbie. This was an actual Barbie doll who was black. So Katie Black Perkins actually did first grow up in the South that was still very racially segregated. She first came into Mattel and immediately started winning awards for her work. She was responsible for over 100 designs a year, one-fifth of all designs that Barbie has ever made. And she actually, Mattel donated a doll that Black Perkins designed for the permanent collection of the South Carolina State Museum. And her influence has been noted by several different civil rights groups. She is an inductee into the Black Hall of Fame. She won a Mattel's Chairman Award, Doll of the Year Award. So she very much has, in addition to the Black Barbie, she also designed several holiday Barbies, Fashion Savvy Barbie, Bath Time Barbie, and Brandy. It's very important to not only have designers who are willing to make innovative choices with the doll, but also to have the representation of Black designers who really can speak to what Black children are looking for in a toy based on their experience of, of having and not having certain toys to, that they could have grown up with. And 
that really gives a lot better insight into how to design the toys that people are really going to want to see and will respond to. So what I also learned recently is that a lot of the black Barbies are worth more. A lot of big reason for that is not as many of them were made. So they're harder to find, especially in good condition. As I mentioned, there were three black fashion dolls for Mattel. So Francie was a cousin of Barbie, I believe. Let's go back to my family tree here. Yeah. So yeah, a cousin of Barbie. So originally issued as a white doll, but they actually had a different race of Francie that was released, which was called colored Francie, which is now referred to as black Francie. But just so you know that that was not what she was called. And this is Francie is sort of considered the first black Barbie, but not really because I think I mentioned this before. They really just use the same old Barbie body and the same face sculpt and just change it to a different color and then just put some darker hair on it. And that's what they called the black Francie. They also had Christy. Christy was the official first Barbie character that was not just a redoing of a white Barbie. So Christy was released in 1968. And then they also had Julia, which was based on a character from a show starring Diane Carroll. Then that was one of the first, uh, next to Twiggy, that was one of the first celebrity tie-in dolls that they made. They also, most recently, as we've seen, they came up with the Disney Little Mermaid Ariel doll. They've had a repro of the Black Barbie that we talked about that came out in 2020. They've done likenesses of Diana Ross, Janet Jackson, Destiny's Child, Raven Simone, Nicki Minaj, Ida B. Wells, Rosa Parks, Katherine Johnson, Madam C.J. Walker, Misty Copeland, Gabby Douglas, Naomi Osaka, and Dina Asher-Smith, Ibtihaj Muhammad. So a lot of Olympic Barbies, it seems like here got Laverne Cox. Oh, they did a Zendaya Barbie, Yara Shahidi, Dr. Maya Angelou, Ava DuVernay, Ella Fitzgerald, Bessie Coleman. So many, just so many. Going back to some of the list of black Barbies is what I meant to search for. List of Barbies, friends and family. So this is the article that I used to kind of help make my little family flowchart here. In addition to Black Barbie, they also had a Brooklyn Barbie. So when, this is from 2021, there's a movie called Barbie Big City Big Dreams. And they're now coming into the two different Barbie timelines of the stereotypical blonde Barbie with the urban black Barbie named Brooklyn, who lives in Brooklyn and is technically a real Barbie. So we find out that it's now canon that not only is there a canonically black character named Barbie, like that got released in the eighties, but there's now some sort of like video visual confirmation of that as well. So this Barbie is still named Barbara Millicent Roberts, but they refer to her as Brooklyn Barbie as well. If you search them online. So more friends of Barbie, we've got, So yeah, again, Christy, which was the first African-American friend group that was part of the Barbie talking dolls. Her boyfriend was Brad. There's also the sensational Malibu Christy doll, who 
dated Ken for a time, then was paired with someone named Steven. Nikki was then, Christy was then replaced by Nikki as the African-American friend. They used the exact same face. And the change of the name was never really addressed. There's also Teresa. I remember that Teresa was a very popular doll in the 80s and 90s. That was Barbie's Spanish, Hispanic friend. There, I believe there was like a totally hair Teresa, I want to say. So Nikki was a frequent character in the web series. And she's in Barbie Dreamhouse Adventures. So she's kind of introduced in the late 90s as part of the Teen Skipper line but was actually kind of more of a friend of Barbie as well. There was also Grace, who's African-American and was appeared in a few different Barbie movies and started appearing in Barbie Life in the Dreamhouse. As you'll notice, I'm not going to go into too much about the Barbie movies and the Barbie vlog. This is where you'll find a lot more of the modern Barbie information and lore about what's going on in the Barbie universe now, but... I'm not super familiar with it, and I didn't go into it in great detail. I wanted to kind of focus more on the dolls and Mattel as a company, and then kind of close off with my brief thoughts on the Barbie movie. There was also, there was a British Barbie that was Barbie's British friend in like the late 60s, early 70s named Stacy. There was a character that they kind of introduced on and off called PJ. There was a whole like list of the different race characters. So there was another Nikki that was released in the Animal Lovin' line, who was Asian, not Black. So what we'll find with Barbie, too, is that like when they think people aren't going to notice and they can get away with it, is that Mattel's going to reuse different, like, switch the names of the characters, use the same face sculpts and hair and stuff for different types of the characters, and just kind of hope that no one really calls them out. For example, they had, like, Simone, an African-American character, and so... That doll reappeared in a later version of the American Idol Barbie line. A lot of the early Barbies of the different races kind of just, again, had slight tweaks, but they ultimately would have, like, the same face sculpt, same body type. Only later did they have, like, actually fully defined features of their own. You also see in, like, the Barbie and the Rockers lines and then the Fashionistas lines, as I mentioned before, there's more racial diversity that they've introduced some other celebrity ones that they've come out with that are fairly uh, important are the Osmonds. Uh, they have Miss America pageant one, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Truly Scrumptious doll. They had a Wayne Gretzky doll come out. They had Gone with the Wind line. They had a Wizard of Oz line. I also just recently watched something actually that talks about some of the similarities between Barbie and the Wizard of Oz, kind of like that similar journey of discovery, how Barbie has to leave her like sort of isolated little bubble. She goes down a pink road rather than a yellow brick road. And she's sporting a pink gingham dress, which is very reminiscent of Dorothy's dress. And actually in the Barbie land theater, one of the movies that's playing is the wizard of Oz. So there's a, again, another little mini Barbie internet conspiracy theory on how that relates to very much a similar idea of uh, of somebody trying to kind of like find their way in the world and make sense of things and like find find their own courage and bravery and and resourcefulness and tenacity in the world. They've made a line of clueless dolls. They made a sound of music Maria doll. They made Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley, Lucille Ball, Audrey Hepburn. They made Rosie O'Donnell, Mary Kate and Ashley, Elizabeth Taylor. 
famously some Cher dolls. Bob Mackie, as I mentioned, is a designer for Cher. So he has done quite a few collabs with Mattel on dolls. I mentioned all of the Disney dolls. They did Carol Burnett, Debbie Harry, Cindy Lauper, whole Twilight series, Barbara Streisand, a lot of uh, old old school classic actors. Uh, they did Grace Kelly, Rock Hudson, and Doris Day. They've done Taylor Swift. They've done some DC dolls, Tomb Raider. They had a whole line of inspiring women dolls. So they did like Frida Kahlo, Amelia Earhart, also including Sally Ride, Billie Jean King, Florence Nightingale, Helen Keller, a whole bunch of different people. They've done a Queen Elizabeth doll. So tons of different celebrity ones. So we'll now kind of go back to closing up here with, I guess I'll talk about some of the quality and of the dolls changing over time. And I'll talk a little bit about the collector stuff. So quality of the dolls. This is another thing that I went over with, with my mom when talking about some of the Barbie stuff and um, something that I noticed when delving into the toys, how they were made and produced then versus now. The toys that I was exposed to as a kid were nowhere near the standard of quality that used to exist when Mattel first came out. There's so many little individual details on the dolls themselves that has declined so much. And so a lot of collectors will tell you, even if you get a really good reproduction, it's just not the same material, not the same way that they do the hair and the faces. I'll go through some of the few things that you're going to look for to be able to tell if you have a real vintage Barbie and some of the different quality changes that have happened over the years. So in the beginning, when Barbie came out, there was a lot more attention to doing things that were like less mass produced. Like they took more time with their, how they were making things, even though the toys were still being made overseas, they were still able to have a level of quality that was a lot higher than now, just based on, I think the price of materials. And I think the, the, the decline is based on, I think just how fast they want to get things to market, how much more efficient they can make the production, how they can cut corners the quality. This is more, more just talking about the, where the production came from. It's, that's more of an economy-based economy thing. As you'll notice with some of the earlier Barbies, the hair is a lot better quality. You'll find that the hair is attached a lot better. And you'll notice that there's a lot more of what's called articulation in the limbs. The actual arms and legs are a lot more pliable. They've added into the legs things that'll make them snap back and forth into place so that you can move the legs around. So Barbie started off as going through certain levels of posability, for example. So what we associate with Barbie now is like a doll that's either got very straight arms out like this, or they've got the arms full, like kind of set in like uh, robot mode, and they don't really move much from there. And Barbie is, is kind of a very like stationary moving character. So that's pretty accurate for the most part. There have been certain times in Barbie's history, though, where the ability to pose and, and, and move her has increased and decreased. And some of that's based on the ability for Harold Matson, for example, and other people working within Mattel to create those new innovations in design and get them patented and get them on the dolls. And then as certain people are working within the company able to do that, 
some of those features stay and some of them go away. Actually, before I even start talking about some of the features, let me just quickly go back to the legal issues of of Harold Matson and Mattel because it is a bit sad. So Mattel, the name Mattel is actually because of this guy. So interestingly enough about Ruth Handler, they somehow couldn't figure out a good way to fit her name into the name Mattel. So they just kept the two guys' names, and that's why Mattel is named what it is. So it's Harold Matson, so Matt being part of his last name, and L being the beginning of Elliot Handler. So that's why it's named Mattel. And Ruth, I guess, did not get any part of the name, but she got everything else, so it's fine. <laughs> and so Harold Matson had a very long time working relationship with Mattel. He was kind of screwed over a little bit by Ruth and Elliot. So what happened was, so Mattel was basically founded like most companies get founded in someone's garage. When they first started the company, Matson sold his share and stake quite early. And that's when Ruth kind of took over. And as I mentioned before, the company was already making toys long before Barbie. And with a lot of Matson's input, gave innovative ideas to a, a bunch of different things, not just for Barbie, but for a lot of other of their other toys as well. A lot of people may also remember the Chatty Cathy doll. That was Mattel. By the time the 50s came around, we had Barbie and Ken coming out. So they made an agreement with Matson where he was supposed to get a share of basically every single doll that got sold. What they should have done in hindsight, they said, was just kind of paid him a salary or worked out some different kind of deal with him. Because between all of the different dolls that came out, plus all of the patents that he had helped to create, he was getting paid a lot more money than they could afford to give him. So then they started fucking around with him in terms of paying him out. He then took them to court for failure to pay wages. Of course, they went back and forth over the years. Of course, Ruth ended up kind of getting screwed over too, but that was her own of her own doing, really. Going back to that, Mattel's gone through both, you know, like cooking the books, not doing recalls properly, needing to do too many recalls, all sorts of different stuff. So again, if you go and look at some of the background of what happened with Harold Matson and Mattel. He ended up getting very into drinking and getting very depressed over this back and forth legal stuff. He ended up dying with, without a lot of money because Mattel basically kind of buried him in court for many, many years. Mattel also for a short time purchased the Ringling and Barnum and Bailey Circus. They had a lot of losses for that as well. But there's, uh, again, so the controversy, but because of his, because of Matson's contributions, Mattel, even before Barbie came out, there was a huge issue with them, you know, paying what they were supposed to pay people in terms of proper wages and what he actually owned the rights to in general in terms of patents and trademarks. Another thing that happened with Mattel legally, which I want to mention, is the Aqua Barbie Girl scandal. In 2000, so it wasn't until 2000 that they actually sued Aqua. The song Barbie Girl came out in the late 90s. I remember exactly where I was when I first heard it. And I remember dancing around in my friend's living room, like nonstop, listening to this fucking jam. This was like the greatest song of all time. 
So, and this would have been at a time where I was still playing with Barbies a little bit. So it was like perfect timing. I was like 10 years old, loving life, loving the pop vibes, feeling my whole self. And all of a sudden, three years later, Mattel comes after Aqua saying that they used the name without proper licensing. They said that they were defaming the name of Barbie and saying that Barbie was a sex symbol and referring to her as a blonde bimbo and telling people to like touch her and play with her in a suggestive manner. The lawsuit was rejected and dismissed in 2002 after their record label determined that the song was protected under parody rights. So Mattel couldn't do shit. And Barbie Girl now exists in the fucking Barbie movie. That's really funny to me. Suck on that, Mattel. And finally, we have... I think that's all of the main scandalous things that happened with Mattel that we really need to go through. But anyway, so now we're going to finish off with the a few of the different quality things. So you'll notice a severe decline in terms of the way that the clothes are made. Just the, the attention to detail on like lace and like layering of the fabrics and additions of like zippers and metal hardware clasps on the clothing. The quality of the fabric and the quality of the plastics that are getting used and then, as I mentioned, with articulation, it says here, Barbie went fully posable in the 70s, then started to backtrack over the years as time went on. I guess for the company, it was too much money to, for them to make the dolls super posable. It took too long, I guess. So they had certain things where they would go back and like take the posability out. So you had very much a doll that like only could raise its arms like straight up and down and its legs like only went on the one way and they only would add the posability, the extra articulation in for like the the more active Barbie. So like anything that was related to working out or anything to do with sports, they would include those things. But for all the other Barbies, it didn't exist. They started taking out the stands that you could put Barbie on and that was only available for collector items in the 70s. Of course, they added in the in the face sculpt, the front facing apex predator eyes and the smile they also had a doll that they released with bigger breasts in the 70s which was really frowned upon they were not feminists were not happy with that and then in the 1990s they released a doll that was more realistic to people's body types they gave her a larger waist a more realistic figure the ken doll actually has gone through a I think the most significant change over time, they made the Ken doll look everywhere from like just very like too young to too old. And they had different things like in the seventies, they had like three different versions of sport and shave Ken because they were really focusing on grooming and hygiene. So I think like they thought the only thing they could really do with Ken back then is, and, and with really Barbie too, is give them things to do with their hair so in that case, they gave Ken like a, a facial hair and then you could like shave it off or take it off or something with water. The feet are also a big thing. And some of the Barbies with the articulation, they gave them flat feet. Some of the younger looking dolls like Skipper, they would give flat feet, not the pointed foot. Again, this is also criticized because it's basically like you're implying that Barbie always needs to be in a high heeled shoe, which again is another sort of ire of feminists. It's like the high heeled shoe as an oppressive fashion choice potentially. In the 2010s, Barbie's signature thigh gap 
with her skinny legs, she generally always had a pretty large thigh gap. So they uh, ended up getting rid of that by adding, again, some more curvy dolls with a bit more realistic leg and thigh sizes. Mattel partnered with the National Down Syndrome Society to create the first Barbie to represent a person with Down syndrome. So Barbie is definitely having evolved over the years in terms of just taking the stereotypical height, body type, face sculpt, and hair, and foot shape, hand shape, and articulation. The hands are also quite significant because they they went from having like the fused molded fingers to having separation in the fingers with certain Barbies and even like posable fingers and hands. This became when they started giving Barbie more accessories that she could actually like use. It would be kind of before they would have like slide the accessory in or they'd have some sort of like a little band that you could like slide it on the wrist. So there's different things. And then, yeah, in terms of the iconic like Barbie posing thing, it's very much a, it's based on kind of how much they wanted to put effort into making Barbie posable versus just getting her to market. In terms of some more pop culture things about Barbie, I'll make a few more references. One of the things, of course, that I remember the most about a Barbie pop culture references is from The Simpsons, where they basically just rip off the name Stacy from the Barbie line and then just kind of rename it as the entire Barbie name in the Simpsons universe is Stacy, specifically Malibu Stacy. So that is like the Simpsons version of Barbie. And they show Lisa and all of her friends being very into Malibu Stacy, but Smithers is another person in the show who is an avid Malibu Stacy collector and lover. And he actually ends up being in the Mal- in a community production of Malibu Stacy musical. And so that is a very significant reference to Barbie that I remember. I was watching a few of the Robot Chicken episodes. They do a few Robot Chicken episodes about Barbie as well. Within the Barbie movie itself, there's a lot of pop culture references that that they put into the movie for, for everything from like Cher's getting ready wardrobe, rotating word, digital wardrobe and Clueless to uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the very beginning of the movie, where like all the kids are like smashing their old dolls on the ground to like get rid of them to get the new Barbie doll. When like the the massive monolith like giant fifties vintage Barbie shows up, the Wizard of Oz again they do reference that in here as well as they do acknowledge that was a reference. I already made made mention to this to someone else. I was just talking to about the Barbie movie how the weird Barbie is supposed to represent the Matrix Morpheus character and presents Barbie with the high heeled shoe or the Birkenstock as like the red pill blue pill version Barbie version of that. We've also got uh, a Midnight Cowboy reference when Barbie and Ken are kind of like going down the boardwalk and like having their cowboy experience there. So the the movie itself is doing tongue-in-cheek references to pop culture as well as influencing influencing it itself at the same time. I've mentioned Toy Story, which before this was kind of like where Barbie kind of had its last big reference. There's been a couple iconic Saturday Night Live references to Barbie. They've done a a couple very funny skits about Barbie on SNL. Britney Spears in those SNLs iconically played uh, Skipper, Barbie's sister. There was actually a a, a band that when the Muslim Barbie came out, actually, I mentioned the hijabi Barbie that came out and that there was also, it was banned in many countries for not representing Muslim values. 
there was also apparently there was a Jewish Barbie that came out. It was like it was made by like an independent artist. I was just reading about this because yeah, they, there was obviously not a lot of. I mean, as as you may have known, I mean, the creators of Barbie themselves have Jewish ancestry, but basically they had it was any everything from some independent people coming out with like concept Jewish Barbies, like a bat mitzvah Barbie, Barb mitzvah. And there is also a Tefillin Barbie. Tefillin is like a leather strap thing that you wrap around your arm and then you put, it's like got a box on the end of it and like Orthodox Jewish people use it during prayer. So somebody like came up with like a concept Barbie for that. Um, and wearing it, yeah, wearing a talit and tefillin. And also a depicted reading from a Sefer Torah. It's been subject of a lot of different articles as well. So there's been a few different things like coinciding with religion and, and cultural identity. Of course, we mentioned all of the different Barbies of the world. And as far as I know, there is now officially a Barbie that represents all the different parts of my cultural background. There's a Scottish Barbie, German Barbie, and Jamaican Barbie. So that's always great. The last thing I wanted to talk about is, I think that was it. I have something about feet on here. I think I already talked about the feet, though. It's something that's very significant in the movie of Barbie's feet being pointed versus flat in the movie. The foot fetish only fans references alone. And this, this is definitely something that the film tries to talk about. It's not like it's unaware. And so this is kind of what I'm going to end with is sort of my whole thing about the Barbie movie. It's like, I feel like there's awareness of the issues that they're trying to talk about, but they can't fully like, go into depth of really going there because it still has to be a movie for family friendly and kids and still pander to like the status quo of the mainstream. And it, there's still a goal of capitalism and toy selling there that they need to, so they need to be careful of like how they're talking about and referencing things. This has led to things like the Barbie foot challenge on TikTok. Of course, this is something that could be extremely damaging to people's feet. There's some people who are obviously going to like, creep the Barbie movie to like peep some free feet pics, right? Like they're not, I don't, I don't think they're ignorant in terms of knowing that that's the case. Like Greta Gerwig's a very intelligent and, you know, well experienced director and somebody who I think is aware of those realities. So I don't think that was done without that being considered. So from the, her first appearance in the real world, like whether or not the feet are flat or pointed, the, the, they're, they're very point, much pointing out that she's still going to be objectified, right? And so it's not just part of, like, the character's look. It becomes, like, a, a part of the, the plot. And her feet falling to flat is, again, like, she is talking about how it's, it's taking away that, like, idea of perfection and that idea of the feminine idea and desire out of her life, which is so tied to Barbie as a doll and so tied to the character of Barbie in the movie being given the choice to like maintain the illusion of perfection or feel what it's like to finally be in a, in a sense I guess they're trying to say a down more down to earth individual and give up a little bit of that perfection and still be a valid person because the thing is it's like 
it's great for them to all root for each other and be confident. And it's easy to like big each other up and to, to feel like you're achieving something and feel successful when everything about your look is perfect and not a hair is out of place. And, and every single day, everything goes right for you. And there's never any challenges and there's never any actual work to be done. The concept of the perfect foot in the perfect position and then falling from that, it's very much like that's where we take away the fakeness, the, the false idea of Barbie's perfect life. And we see her and each other as, as real, fully formed, fully realized characters maybe even real people. And so that's kind of, I think, what I wanted to end with the Barbie movie. So I'm not going to give a ton of spoilers. So essentially, the, the main plot of the Barbie movie is that all of the Barbies and Kens are existing in this beautiful world. One day, Barbie starts thinking about her life and develops existential dread. The, when she starts thinking about her own mortality and her own existence the perfection of her life starts to unravel. This is where I really start to feel like the movie really could have gone somewhere really innovative and out, out there and really d- done something. And it has to, and it really had to like rein it in and restrain itself, which is kind of a shame, but I feel like the, I, like the seed was planted. The idea was there. And I feel like they had to do it in such a careful way because of the different groups that they're trying to hit with this movie and the different boxes that they're trying to check. Like I get why that would have been hard to do from there. Once Barbie starts seeing, having the, these feelings again, these little, th- little things in her life start to get thrown off. So like she's no longer able to walk on water and float through the air. All of her showers are cold. She can't make her toast properly anymore. She has trouble sleeping and her feet are no longer pointed. They're flat. So, after all these things start happening, none of the other Barbies know what to do. They they start going to push her to talk to the weird Barbie. The weird Barbie kind of lives on the outskirts of Barbie land. But weird Barbie is a result of the, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, of the kids in the real world playing with Barbies too hard. And she is like all weird looking now. And like in comparison to the other Barbies. So, but she is because she has the most life experience and because she is the most imperfect of all the Barbies, she is now the most wise. So that is an interesting thing as well. Like you have to have a Barbie that's seen and experienced as much of what life has to offer to really, truly be the one that has the most insight and be be able to help the other Barbies the most. So Barbie, and then of course, Ken is sort of a stowaway come to the real world and not only meet what real humans are like, the humans that they have been told that they had been interacting with them kind of behind the scenes all this time. They also discover patriarchy and bigotry and and all that stuff. So Ken, who I feel already seemed like a character in the Barbie world who was like very unsatisfied, which I suppose is sort of supposed to be his underlying thing is that because he's constantly being friend zoned, he is always like a little bit annoyed by everything it seemed. So I feel like they kind of set it up for him to be the most susceptible recipient of patriarchy. He just eats that shit up and then he brings it back to Barbie land and causes the whole nature of Barbie land to fall into disarray because now nobody's equal 
and women are losing their ability to have free agency because they're now being brainwashed by patriarchy. And that's based on examples from the real world. So then we also have the real world character of America Ferreira's character, which now has to now come in and mediate between the Barbies and humans. Um, we have the corporation of Mattel uh, as represented in Will Ferrell, who is now part of this picture too, who cannot let anybody in the real world know that Barbie has, has gotten out because it could become so catastrophic for, for some reason. So now we've also got Barbie feeling like less of a valid entity because the real world has taken away some of like that ignorance is bliss aspect of her life. It's now become a thing where it's like, well, how do I recapture that, you know, confidence and happiness that I used to have? Like, and do I really want to go back to being this untouched sort of false idol status or do I want to experience what it really is to be a, a real person that can feel emotions like in this movie you know Barbie's never shed a tear before and like she cries for the first time she's never been violent and like within like minutes of getting to the real world she punches a guy who slaps her on the ass t- grabs her ass in the fucking face the second she's there she experiences both white and pretty privilege several times over but yet is knows that she's always going to be bound to that and be suffering from that as much as people claim she's benefiting from it. I've read a lot of really good criticisms about the movie, and it's basically like the idea that patriarchy is introduced and that it's it's introduced as a major problem in our world and the cause for a lot of these issues in both how Barbie was created and sold to people and marketed to people. And it still faces a lot of those problematic challenges today of being developed in a hugely patriarchal society. But a lot of people are still not going to get those themes in the movie. And I don't think that they really went far enough with it. There's been a couple of really good critiques I've read where it's sort of like they, they acknowledge the patriarchy is a thing, but they don't really like explain where it comes from. It's just this like magical thing that came out of nowhere. Like it's really like not fully explained that it's, it's really just like a, a fear that men have of, not constantly being in control and being the center of attention and having an easy life that's achieved by exploiting others. And that can really only come through brainwashing people into thinking that it was their choice and brainwashing people into thinking that a certain standard of men is to be worshipped at all times. So like they do go there with those examples and sometimes they do a great job and it's like just just subtle enough that I think it's like very sub- well done in a subversive way. The whole Just Ken song is like genius to me. And it's so it's so much like the false cry, like the false like the false target that guys put on themselves of like, oh, why can't she see how I really am? And and when will I ever get out of the friend zone? And I just want to feel what life really is like, but it's like as, as a a certain type of guy, like they're already experiencing the best that life has to offer. And it's like, it's such a funny song in terms of like, you know, being the, the nice guy who is just like so hard done by when it's like, you literally have been given an entire musical number to yourself for you to sing with a bunch of other guys who look and act exactly like you supporting you the whole time. And yet you're complaining about how hard your life is. 
Like it's just such a, it's not only is it like a beautifully catchy musical theater song and Ryan Gosling is, and is just fucking genius. And like, just uh, him in this movie was absolute perfection. Uh, understanding intention, nuance, like who's actually watching the movie and is going to get those things out of it. I think we're all things that were very important and sometimes it hit the mark and sometimes it very much missed the mark. There's like the very end of the movie. The last line was like very jarring to me. So it was like Barbie decides it's again, spoiler alert. If you haven't watched the movie, then don't listen to this part. So Barbie has decided to stay in the real world. She's decided to become a human like little mermaid it and decided to no longer live in Barbie land. And like the very end of the movie is her walking up to this building. You think she's going in for like a job interview or like going to do some kind of like TV show or something talking about her life. She goes into this building and she's like, I'm here to see my gynecologist. And like, basically it's like, and like, I get, I, I guess I get what they were trying to do with that where it's like, yes, you should be going into like, see your gynecologist. You need to be aware of your female reproductive health. The fact that you can have somewhere to go to actually see a gynecologist is very important. Like that's a good political message. We should be, we should be focusing on in this day and age. Yes. I just feel like they could have, they could have like done it less like beating, like saying the line like that, that was just like such an awkward jarring way to end the movie. And like, if you didn't quite have that sense of humor or get what they were trying to do, it was just like, okay, what the fuck? Okay. You just like told me you're going to get your coochie inspected. Thanks Barbie. Like, okay. Like, like, yes, go off. But also like, what the fuck? I just feel like like if they had like panned out and showed that it was like a planned parenthood or something or like a clinic, like done it a little bit more subtly, I feel like it would have achieved a more, a more like impactful message. You know what I mean? Cause I feel like that's that, like that's where the whole, that's where the whole arguments of people saying like, Oh, it's like too fucking woke. And it's, it's like this and that it's like, sometimes it was too woke. Sometimes it wasn't woke enough. And sometimes the wokeness was like shrouded in too much, either shrouded in too much subtlety, or it was like, here, here's the wokeness, boom, like right over the head with it. And so that's, and I think that's very much just a, a challenge that didn't quite get overcome of trying to make the movie so many things for so many different people. And I feel like with a movie like this, that gets caught up in like uh, marketing and, and promotion. That's like, the amount of money that got poured into it could have like solved fucking world hunger. And we've gotten so wrapped up in like the aesthetic of the release of the Barbie movie and like the nostalgia of the Barbie movie that I think we are forgetting the wokeness of the movie and and what it was supposed to really be tackling. That's I think wasn't getting focused on enough. The big speeches in the movie were like very well done. I really liked the addition of Helen Mirren as the narrator. I thought that was quite funny. Basically, like, all the Kens I loved. I loved, like, all the Kens. Kate McKinnon was amazing. Simu Liu was incredible. As I mentioned, Michael Sarah just, he can do no wrong. Anytime, <laughs> this scene where he's, like, beating the shit out of the guy, like, in, with the Ken fight on the beach, and he's like, all of Ken's clothes, I fit in all of Ken's clothes, or something like that. And just, it's just, like, he, <laughs> like I, I fucking lost it. Like, just all of the lines he said, and just, just like, his mannerisms. I couldn't have picked a better person to be Alan. Like it was fucking incredible. It was so great. 
there were like little things too, like where they were trying to put in like the facts and kind of like the, the little references to all the different Barbies through history. I liked that they did it visually and showed them all like the cameos. There were like certain lines like um, Will Ferrell finally comes to Barbie land and he sees Midge and he's like, oh God, oh, I remember that one. We discontinued that one. No one wants to see pregnant Barbie or something like that. And like just little things like where they've tried to add in like the references to some of the more controversial things they've done and, and just like past things that have happened with the company. Rhea Perlman as Ruth Handler was quite nice. That was a nice little surprise. The old lady on the park bench when when Barbie is in the real world. And they actually almost cut that scene, but then they, they wanted to keep it in because so it was such an important scene of finding that character in the real world who, even though like time has passed and like they were older and, and everything still had that same confidence and ambition and like love of life that Barbie is very much known for. And that really reinstates, it reinstills a lot of hope for Margot Robbie's Barbie character that she can then bring back to the rest of her Barbie crew, make sure that they don't forget that how important they are and how iconic the the legend of Barbie still is. And it really comes with the ability to show creativity and to show just like, just to have that enjoyment of yourself as a person. I think Barbie, for me anyway, and for a lot of us, it really helped us to love ourselves just above and beyond all the other stuff of like the validation of having parents and family who could who could provide you with that kind of toy that it helped you have like a social life in terms of play with other children but regardless like you could create your own worlds within barbie just by yourself this is something that that really starts off from a very young age the ability to self-actualize and to see yourself in a doll and to see yourself in a toy and to really decide whether or not you you like yourself by extension because as you playing with a barbie you're, you're a lot of times with toys you're playing with that toy as an extension of you as a person and so that's what i feel is really important with the legacy of barbie even throughout its ups and downs and its problematic history i mean i won't even get into the whole there it's environmental impact that's that was a whole other thing that i started going down a rabbit hole on with barbie because when i first started reading about the financial issues that mattel was having and how ruth handler was helping to like cook the books and there's this like very infamous story of like her orchestrating the destruction of a bunch of toys that were produced but they're still making false orders for them as if people had purchased them for sale but that those orders never actually happened so they have to get rid of the evidence so it looks like the toys went somewhere. So they're basically like, she's orchestrating them to get like burned up, thrown in landfills, all this stuff. So I started thinking about like, even without doing all that, thinking about how many Barbies don't actually get collected and kept and how many of those non-biodegradable plastic Barbies are sitting around now in landfills, probably since the fucking fifties, still not broken down, contributing to all of our pollution and all of our garbage. And how much pollution was produced making the toys. And that's a whole other problematic thing with, with Mattel. But that's a problematic thing with all toys. But I think in light of recent announcement of the climate boiling advisory change, I think that that's something that all toy companies need to reconsider the carbon footprint and the environmental impact, the lasting impact that they are going to have in terms of toy production. 
So there's also that. And we also know like in the, up until like the nineties, people really not give a fuck about the environment. So yeah, I think there's definitely a change that needs to shift there with Mattel as well. I also didn't really go into the whole Barbie Oppenheimer tie-in. I haven't gotten a chance to see Oppenheimer yet, but yeah, the also we'll, we'll never forget the iconic Barbenheimer opening weekend, hearkening back to the Animal Crossing Doom collab that came up when the release of those two video games came out. We also now have Barbenheimer. So yeah, please do yourself a favor and go online, check out some of the different collectors videos that are out there. There are a lot of really good ones in, and break them all down in terms of the actual Barbies themselves, all the different spin-off friends that they had. They talk about the different changes in aesthetic choices for the different parts of the Barbies and Kens, the rooted hair and eyelashes giving way to like the molded plastic hair, the makeup changes, the face sculpts changes. And then I guess you'll, you'll kind of see what I mean as well when you look up some of like the, de- the decade specific design choices, not just for the dolls, but for like the boxes and as I mentioned, like the logo fonts and the colors, you'll kind of like see what I mean when I talk about like the 80s really being like where we our idea of Barbie now is solidified and it's so much different from when Barbie first started. A lot of the real Barbies will have stamped somewhere on their body, the Barbie logo with all of the manufacturing information. So that's another really good way to tell if a Barbie you have is real or not. Of course, the like side looking glance, which was considered to be more appropriate for women early on because it was deemed more submissive and sly and mysterious, which is what people kind of wanted to women to embody is kind of what the idea was. And, and also just the side looking glance versus a front facing one is kind of, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's implied as what makes a woman more attractive as if they're not like looking you directly in the eye and they're, that implies that they're more submissive and docile in terms of collector stuff. Like that's how you're going to be able to really differentiate between some of the decades. Like those are very iconic design choices with some of the Barbies. Barbie is very much going to live on as much as it is in like movie and TV and in game format, as much as it is in the actual dolls themselves. So that's where I feel like it's kind of gotten bigger than the toy now. And especially with sort of Barbie as now collabing with different companies for fashion and different products. I think it's now definitely become way bigger than just the doll. And yeah, I'm really glad that as a movie that is accused of being woke, it's like, it's like they say with certain other things, it's like that this character's already been woke. Like, why are you just saying that they've turned them woke now? Like Barbie was already breaking barriers and doing a lot of things that people were against back then. And so it's funny that like, they're still saying it's woke. So like, just as like missing the point of how they're trying to take history back, like in 50 years again, when it's like, even back then there were still things challenging that status quo. First, it was with women's role in society, then with different races and then subsequently with, you know, different representations of body types and abilities. And that was, and you have to remember as well, that was not just Mattel taking it upon themselves to do that. In some instances, it was like what we've explained with certain designers that they had and things like that and certain CEOs. And it was also very much they responded to what the public was trying to tell them of, along many steps of the way. 
So they, one thing I will say is that they seem to kind of always have that desire to listen to what their public wanted and responded accordingly. And that's, I think, why the doll stayed so relevant. And then the last thing I just wanted to mention about Ruth Handler, because just learning about her as a person, she's very, again, not a perfect individual, definitely certain decisions that her and her husband made were quite problematic. And she suffered for that. But you cannot deny that the from the beginning, even before creating Mattel, starting the initial company with her husband and turning it into what it became. And then actually, Ruth Handler, so serving as the first president of Mattel. So before that, as I mentioned, they were furniture salespeople. And Ruth was the one that helped Elliot turn his furniture production into a full-fledged business and landed big contracts with that business, helping to pick the other people that they went into business with. The furniture company they made to turn it then into the toy manufacturing with their knowledge now of how to manipulate different kinds of plastics and materials and have those different design features in the dolls, coupled with Ruth's ability to sell the product and start up the business and keep it going. And that was just so innovative and and just unheard of for, for women to achieve that back then. Ruth Handler was diagnosed with breast cancer and had very early on a radical mastectomy. And there was no good quality prosthetic breast that you could get after your mastectomy. And she decided to make her own business. So she created a company called Nearly Me. And it was manufacturing realistic versions of breasts for cancer survivors and people who wanted or needed prosthetic breasts. And First Lady Betty Ford was personally fitted for one of these. This was actually before and in and around the time that she was getting investigated for her shady business dealings within Mattel. She blamed her illness for making her unfocused on the business, which was a little bit, a little bit sus. But yeah, and she, she actually has passed away from complications from surgery for cancer back in 2002. But her name well, not really her name was we've learned, but her idea, her personal drive and her savvy and all these other things are now going to live on within Mattel. And we've got a brand new generation of both children and adults who are ready to, I think, to embrace this brand. And I just hope that they continue to kind of try to do good and do right and take the image of Mattel and the image of Barbie in a positive direction for this new generation. And it honestly was a lot of fun to get back into my memories of having Barbies and memories of growing up with Barbie around. Um, I think one of the, one of the last things I was going to mention is one of the very iconic things I remember about Barbie is their McDonald's tie-ins. That's the other thing. And, and as somebody with a sibling who ate at McDonald's a lot, we were at McDonald's quite a bit and uh, those the Happy Meal toys, anytime the Barbie ones came out, they were always fire. And that is something that I'll always remember, too. It was just like in the, late, in the 80s and 90s, just like so predominant. And the fact that it was able to then use that reputation to work with all these different companies. And like now you've got Barbie and Happy Meal 
Mattel just took over everything. And so it's like, you can't look anywhere without already without having seen Barbie. And now with the movie, it's like basically going to be impossible for like the next month as well. But that's just how it's kind of always been with Barbie. Yeah, I really wish I'd kept some of those Barbie Happy Meal toys. So in addition to the dolls and the, the and all of the Mickey D's, that's definitely what I remember. Yeah, like that that good chunk of time where the Barbie Hot Wheels to Happy Meals were dominating. That was a good time. That was that, that was a simpler time. It wasn't just a happy meal. It was a happier life. Now I have a crappy meal. <laughs> There's no toy. It was good. I, I had a good time getting that little serotonin boost from the uh, Barbie experience. I think pink looks pretty good on me. I might just start rocking pink all the time. It's kind of reminding me back of when I had my pink hair, too. I'm very tempted to dye it pink again. I'm tr- going to try really hard not to do that. And yeah, I have been singing that Billie Eilish song from the movie and that it, I'm Just Ken song for literally like the last two weeks. So both really cool tracks. Check them out if you haven't already. There's a very, it's a very short Barbie soundtrack, but it's, it's a pretty solid one. It, it keeps that, it keeps that energy, that Kennergy, Barb energy up throughout. I'm definitely kicking myself, wishing I'd kept some of my Barbies and kept them in good condition off somewhere. Maybe one day I'll go down and check out if there's any left at my grandma's house and see if there's any good ones still in the basement. Maybe, who knows? That was actually such a funny line in the movie. That was, that was the one last thing I was going to say. There's a Kate McKinnon's character. They come up to the house, the human and the and the Barbies. And she's like, oh, it's humans. Hey, what's up? And Alan's like, yeah, I'm here too. It's Alan. And then they're like, oh, who are you? And I'm weird, Barbie. I'm always doing the splits. And I have a funky, weird house. And I smell like basement <laughs> or something like that. And I was like, that's the... <laughs> It's the smelling like basement for me. (laughs) And it just made me think of all those Barbies that are probably in my grandma's basement smelling like basement right now. Yeah, I think that was basically all I wanted to talk about. Thank you so much for all coming to visit. Tavern is still open. Tavern is still going strong, both in real life and in fantasy land, in Barbie land. I think that keeping the fantasy alive and and keeping your hope and your dreams alive is very important for me, especially right now going through some big feelings this week and going through a lot of having to find the strength and find the stamina and find the ability to approach life with the same level of energy and positivity that I usually try to, even though it's really, really hard. It's what Barbie would have done, I think. Sometimes that you got to find that inspiration from somewhere. Yeah, find, find the strength is what I'm saying. It's a good end of the podcast. Do all the things that a good, strong, positive leader is trying to do and to keep improving both your life and the lives of others by having a good self-esteem. I think that's those are real messages that I kind of tried to walk away from the Barbie movie with. Because if you have a good self-esteem and you have a good awareness of self, even if that includes thoughts of death and thoughts of your own life, and, and you know, like, I think that's only going to positively impact you because then maybe you will have a renewed 
sense of the the mark you want to leave on the world before you go and have a have a more defined sense of what your priorities are and what's important to you. So there's that. We're going to continue with that good headspace going forward this month. And thank you once again to everybody for coming out to listen this week in the Fantasy Tavern. I'm glad I finally got through this episode. We did it. Any kind of major tears. I just tried to go with it this week and just get out all the things I wanted to say and wanted to speak to. Be a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. Or a Barbie boy in a Barbie world. Or a Barbie they them non-binary individual in a Barbie world. Whatever you want to do. Thank you so much. And until next time, signing off. And bye-bye.